Deputy uh, Justice Committee. If members can do the needful with any electronic uh, devices at this stage of the meeting, if there are any declarations of interest, financial or otherwise, now is the appropriate time to declare it. I will declare uh, an interest in item 9 in respect of the personal injury duty. Um, there is a family member through marriage uh, of mine uh, where this is a relevant issue. I will declare that interest at this stage. If there's any other interest, members feel free to declare it. If not, we'll proceed. Um, if you're content, we will have the oral evidence sessions uh, recorded by Hansard as well. Uh, apologies. Um, I don't think we have any apologies. And Sinead's joining us via the Starleaf facility. And there's been no delegation of members' votes. The draft minutes of the meeting that was held on the 19th of November, um, pages 8 to 13 of your meeting pack. Uh, if members are content that they are an accurate reflection, then I shall sign them accordingly. Members agreed. Matters arising. Uh, there is one uh, item under matters arising, and that is correspondence from the Department of Justice on the Counter-Terrorism and Sentencing Bill. And If I can refer members to pages 4 to 7 of the table pack for the relevant correspondence. The Department of Justice has written providing a copy of a letter that the Minister of Justice has received from the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Justice, Chris Philp MP, which indicates that the UK Government intends to proceed with the Counter-Terrorism and Sentencing Bill without amendment and without the legislative consent of the Northern Ireland Assembly. So, members, this was an issue that uh, this committee had considered over a number of meetings. Um, the Department of Justice and the Minister had um, engaged with the committee on it and ultimately decided not to lay an LCM uh, or to seek the Assembly's approval for an LCM, either in whole or in part, and she then uh, provided the, the rationale for it. Um, speaking on behalf of the DUP in that capacity, I want to welcome this decision. Uh, it's the right decision that's been taken. Uh, it should have been taken right from the start. Uh, I regret. Uh, that the Minister for Justice, having previously indicated support for it, then uh, reneged on that support uh, and ultimately didn't test the Assembly in respect of this matter. But nevertheless, um, as I said at the time, this is not a devolved issue. It's a reserve expected matter. The rationale that's outlined in the letter from the Minister is one that I wholly uh, agree with. We cannot allow Northern Ireland to be uh, treated any differently when it comes to terrorist offenders. Uh, compared to England, Scotland and Wales, and this legislation will apply now to Northern Ireland, uh, and that is a good thing, uh, because we should not be releasing terrorists uh, earlier in Northern Ireland in comparison to any other part of the United Kingdom. So uh, I welcome this, uh, and I look forward to it being enacted. Um, so I appreciate other members take a different view on this, and please feel free to indicate if you wish to comment on it. But for my part, in terms of the DUP, this is a welcome thing. And again, just for the record, I want to thank my own colleague, Gavin Robinson, who led on this issue on behalf of the party uh, at Westminster. Uh, he was informed of this a number of weeks ago, uh, that this decision had been taken and that it would be implemented. And I certainly appreciate the work that he has done uh, in ensuring Northern Ireland is treated the same on this issue uh, as any other part of the United Kingdom. So I'm open to other members if they wish to comment. Um, Linda. It will be no surprise and my um, concerns in relation to this are well on the record in this committee and I, those concerns still stand. My concerns were very much in line with the Minister's concerns and I think in, in fairness to her she 
would have supported um, an amended version, but I think she was right not to support this. I, I mean, it could have come to the assembly. Absolutely, I think you would have got the same outcome. But it isn't a devolved matter. I don't think that legislation for here should ever be made outside of here. But that's I mean, that's another matter and another issue. I. As I say, my concerns with it are well well on the record. I have concerns about the fact that it's retrospective. I have concerns about the implications. My my biggest concern is that this is draconian legislation being brought in because some people want to be seen to be coming down hard instead of actually dealing with the issue and causation. So if you want to like we, we talk in this committee all the time about dealing with root causes, and then we decide to differentiate between root causes of one issue and root causes of another. At the end of the day, we're talking about are we going to try an early intervention, are we going to try and prevent some of these things from becoming an issue in the first place, and then are we going to try to rehabilitate, or are we going to decide some people deserve to be punished more than others, and some people are worse than others. That's just not the case. It's not the case. So, and I think if you if you spoke to the family of somebody, I mean, we've we've had people in in this committee, and we've had people in the assembly, family who've lost family members in in murder cases. And if you're going to tell them that because somebody is labelled as a terrorist, that the killing of the person who they killed is worse than their family member, then I don't think they'd agree with you, because the loss is pain. So. I, I, I don't agree with it for all of those reasons, but as I say, it's on the record. I don't think we need to have a necessarily have a battle in the committee about it, but I do want that I do want that placed on the record. I think that I for all of those reasons I have do not agree with this and have serious issues with it, but it is what it is. Any other members? Doug? Uh, yeah, um Chair, I mean I absolutely agree with it, of course. Um, and I wrote myself and, and gave our party position um, uh, to the minister, as such, and got a reply from him also to say that, that, that what you've just you've just explained, and, and, and as I said to him, and this is what we need to be important with is sometimes we have to be st stopping inward looking. I mean, we have we know what terrorism is about, and we've had to deal with terrorism, but but this is about future proofing what happens that could come in from the outside. This is about international terrorism. This is about people coming from other countries and using Northern Ireland as a place. To, to attack uh, our country and the, the United Kingdom uh, in general. So this is future-proofing against international ter terrorism. And of course, it has an effect on domestic terrorism, especially when you look at um, the, the recent dissident and terrorists who were, who were caught um, liaising with international terrorists. Um, I mean, that is a serious threat. It's a serious threat for any country in the world. Uh, and we cannot sit as a portion of the United Kingdom and have different rules. You can argue whether the rules that the UK brought in were right and wrong at Westminster. You can argue that all you want, but the fact is they've brought them in. And now that they've brought them in, it's important that the whole of the United Kingdom adhere to the same rules, or else we will be the soft underbelly for that international terrorism. So I, I welcome this, um, and I hope the Minister and I, um, ha having to accept this, will actually work speedily to make sure that we get ourselves in line with the rest of the UK on this. Yeah, there, Sinead Bradley. 
his positions firmly on record on this um, in another place, but, but just it is noted, and that's all we're doing, and I think it's disappointing that any such issue comes to a justice committee that served this place merely for noting, and it, it does disempower us um, in terms of whilst we're sharing our opinions amongst each other and putting it on the record, it's unfortunate that that's all we're ever in a position to do on issues such as this. Yes, and then Gordon Dunn. Chair, yes, thanks very much. I would endorse your comments um, on behalf of our party. I think we fully support this. Uh, terrorism is wrong, no matter what source it comes from, or no matter how you try to justify it for whatever reason, it is wrong. It has been, well, and people of this country have suffered so much over the years, and they know, they know all about terrorism, and, and the, the innocent victims of terrorism, I think, need to be remembered and respected. And we fully support uh, the full uh, rigours of the law. And people should be subject to it, subject to regardless of who they are or what they are and, and where they come from. And I uh, fully support what has been proposed, Chair. And we want to see further effective action in, in dealing with the risk and the threat of terrorism, no matter where it comes. Thank you. Linda, you're wanting to come back, just just a, a small point on the back of what Sinead has said. I think that we have been very clear in this committee how important we think our scrutiny role is. But we think that something like this, something as massive as this, that will have a massive impact on this place, is okay, just to be brought in, and we and we give it this great big welcome. And yet we argue that everything else should be scrutinised by the committees in the Assembly, but this is okay and we can just give it a big wide welcome. I just don't see the sense, I don't see the logic or how you can argue that, that's, that you can set aside all of the scrutiny role and all of any issues that you might have or concerns about a piece of legislation because you've decided the word terrorism is in there so let's just go hard at it, let's be seen to be hard on it. And I, I do think that, that's, that there is a bit of that in this and I don't think that anybody who's argued for scrutiny to be done through the committees can say and even in terms of if we talk to what we're about to speak about around the domestic abuse, we did not want to pick up the domestic abuse legislation from anywhere else and, and put it in place here because we felt very, very strongly that it should be based on specifically the North. And, and, and we had very good reasons for that, and I think we were right. And, and we've talked about how good our scrutiny rule was, what we can give, the kind of welcome that we're given here today. I think you could, if you're, if you're minded to, give it some kind of cautious welcome. But to say that it's wonderful, you haven't scrutinised it, or probably, in many cases, even looked at it. I, I just, for me, that has. There's a wee bit of hypocrisy. Well, I know um, from again my party's perspective, and I said at the start, this isn't a devolved issue. So I do make a distinction between what are devolved matters and what are expected matters, and terrorism legislation. Um, operates UK-wide, and that's why this minister is taking the action that they're taking, so I don't draw the same parallels. However, whenever there wasn't devolution, there were significant changes of law at Westminster, fundamental changes of law that were devolved, and there were parties that cheered it to the rafters. Um, and so I think hypocrisy can go on a lot of ways, if members want to, to go down that particular route around what were actually devolved matters. This isn't. It's the right decision, um, in my view, and let's remember what spurred this on. 
This was as a result of murders that took place, not in this jurisdiction, granted, but it was as a result of terrorists that were released after their halfway point of a custodial sentence, who then went on to carry on murder. Jack Merritt, Saskia Jones, 25 years of age, 23 years of age, that were murdered as a result of a terrorist getting out at the halfway point. Now, it will be two-thirds of the way, and the parole, will, the parole body will need to have a role in that. So, this is necessary. Uh, it has resulted in citizens of the United Kingdom already being killed, uh, and Northern Ireland should not be treated any differently when it comes to dealing with terrorism. Uh, we have done that in the past in a way that was unacceptable to many people in Northern Ireland. Uh, going forward in the future, it cannot be allowed to continue. So, um, I am happy that we have aired this. It is here for us to note because the decision has now been taken and it will be implemented. And obviously, people have taken a different perspective on this. Um, but I am content that we note it and proceed. Unless there are any further comments members wish to make, Rachel. Point, um, I don't need to get into whether or not agree with it or not. Um, it's coming through, but it's not through yet. It's my understanding, and it's still hanging about the Lords. Is that correct? And I'm just, maybe I picked it up wrong, but there had been some judicial action taken against this already. So, yeah, I'm just, just I sort of note it. Um, be more than happy to have conversations about addressing root causes of terrorism and how punitive measures actually may or may not be the best option. But that's um, that's for a different time and for unfortunately a different different assembly or a different um, government body, but I'm sure we can come on to it later on whenever we're talking about paramilitarism. But um, yeah, just just to be sort of cautious in that, that it's not actually making its way through, thankfully. But you're right. Well, legislation is open to judicial action, um, and that'll be a matter then for the courts um, to deal with. Okay, members, we will proceed. Item 5 um, is the Domestic Abuse and Family Proceedings Bill and the proposed Department's Amendments for Further Consideration Stage, um, pages 16 to 39 of the meeting pack and 9 to 24 of the uh, tabled pack. So let me welcome uh, Dr Veronica Holland, Head of the Violence Against the Persons Branch, and John Bradley, Head of the Branch within the Civil Legal Aid Reform Branch uh, uh, from the Department of Justice to the meeting. And Stephen Martin, um, Deputy Director of Enabling Access to Justice from DOJ, and Paul Andrews, Chief Executive of the Legal Services Agency, um, who are joining us by Starleaf. So the meeting will be recorded by Hansard, a transcript of which will be published in due course. So we're going to deal with the Department's um, proposed amendments, apart from the uh, eligibility for civil legal aid amendment first. So I think it's Dr. Holland. Um, I'm going to ask you to outline the purpose of each of the department's proposed amendments, with the exception of the civil legal aid amendment, and what changes each amendment makes to the provisions in the bill, and in what way each enhances the provision. Um, so we can proceed. Veronica, I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Um, just go through each of the amendments in, in turn. So, well, the, the first um, couple are fairly straightforward in terms of looking at the long title of the bill and the short title of the bill. So, uh, the changes being made there are really in relation to replacing 
um, references to family and inserting civil, just given some of the changes that have been made to the bill more generally. Um, clause A26 is the information sharing provision with schools. So for that one, we're essentially substituting uh, the provision that is already in the bill in relation to the operation and compass type provision and making uh, more detailed provision in relation to that. Um, in terms of the, the key elements of it, it's setting out um, who or will be enabling us to set out who um, relevant persons are, the designated person are. Um, it's also making provision that in the regulations we can set out who education providers are. So broadly speaking, that will be schools, colleges, um, training facilities. Um, will also enable us to look at um, incidents, whether they are alleged or proved. Um, will cover children that are under the age of 18, and as we say, are at a range of of educational facilities. Um, provision is then made that uh, a relevant person, um, who will generally be referring to the police in relation to a relevant person, and in terms of a designated person, will broadly speaking be a school, college, or um, training program provider. Um, that those are um, in relation to functions of a public nature. Um, then goes on to make provision in relation to the regulations being able to set out what is an incident of domestic abuse. Um, making provision in relation to who are pupils and students, what are education providers in terms of schools, colleges and training provisions. Um, then will enable us to set out provision in relation to the circumstances in which information can be shared and the purpose for that. Um, and a final um, kind of substantive, act, substantive element in relation to that provision is around unauthorised disclosure offences and penalties. And then there are provisions at the end in relation to um, enabling the regulations to cover other such matters as the department considers appropriate um, and allow us to making amending provisions in relation to legislation more generally. Um, the next amendment is tied in with the operation and compass provision that I've just went through and essentially it's, it's um, stating that we would remove the provision that's in the bill at the moment to enable this more substantive um, amendment to be brought forward. The next amendment is dealing with protective measures for victims of abuse. Again, this is Veronica, well, apologies. I probably should have said we'll, we'll take them one by one, and then that'll keep it keep it current, if you don't mind, if that's okay. So, the operation and compass, the information sharing one with schools, Linda. Yeah, just just a couple of questions. The I suppose does it material. Does it materially change? And I don't think it does, but I'm, I would like just clarity around that. Does it materially change the intent of what it is to do? No. Just the other thing that I just want to tease out just a tiny wee bit. You see, in relation to um, the person, and this just came out of the, the closed session and the question that Sinead asked, and I, I don't think we should tie it down too tightly on who that person should be. But the one thing I do think that it may, is that this process should be very simple and easy to do. So whilst I accept you need to have these regulations to set parameters, and I think that's, that is important, and I accept that this, this actually does improve the amendment, for me, the intent is to make this a very simple process. When we talked about it in committee, it was around that if a domestic abuse incident happens, domestic violence incident happens, that before eight o'clock the next morning that the school is informed. So yes, you do have to certainly do have to have something put in place to ensure that the right person informs the right the correct person in the correct way that protects everybody involved. 
But I, I don't want so much process in place that the information never gets to the right person on time. No, and I, and I suppose in, in terms of the, the regulation making powers, you know, it, in terms of answering your question, it doesn't change the intent. As we say, it's, it's intended to very much build on and um, uh, strengthen the, the provision that the committee had. And certainly in terms of the outworkings of it, it won't change how that, that process works as such. I suppose what we, need, what we want to ensure in terms of the regulations is that there's the necessary authority, authorities there for information to be shared. But as you say, there will be a need in practice for that to be quite a streamlined process. So in, in effectively, there's that incident the day before. The police are aware of that. That information is shared with the school. The appropriate person in the school is aware of that being the, the fact. And then they can provide the necessary support or take account of the fact that there's been an incident in terms of how that child is being dealt with or the care that's being um, provided to them. So, so we suppose a simple answer is the detail of the regulations shouldn't impact on how it operates. It's just to ensure that we have the necessary authorities in order to do that. Um, you know, and that's something they'll be, they'll be very focused on and uh, want to give clear consideration to in terms of the pilot that's going to be brought forward to ensure that that process is working well, that it's streamlined, it's simple, it's easy to follow, um, and the information is getting to those individuals in the schools as, as soon as possible. And I suppose it comes back to the, the training then around the training of the person who would be sharing that information. So, I mean, hopefully that will, will cover that as well in the future. Okay, thank you. Um, Rachel? Thank you. Um, just a couple of quick points. Does this include nurseries, preschools, kindergartens? It will cover um, uh, those that are associated with, so where you have preschool in a school. Um, it's not intended to cover kind of more general um, you know, so if individuals are looking after uh, children in their home, I suppose the, the, um, the scope of it is intended to cover essentially where there are established um, institutions that are, are providing education to, um, to young people. So where you have preparatory departments in schools or something of that nature, they would be covered. But not preschool or no early years? I suppose if it's, be, if it's being done as part of a school, it would come within the gambit of that. But if it's a, a separate entity in, it, in its own right, um, it probably wouldn't be covered. But that's something certainly we can have. For, it's not that it couldn't be covered in, in terms of the scope here. Um, but the intention at the moment would be it would be a, a linkage in with a, a school or, or an established facility. And I appreciate that. Just if that's something we can look at because then you're making a distinction between the age of children and where they're attending a school. So if you've got, you're attending a preschool, which obviously would be education, it's also childcare-ish, that's up to debate, but um, they're at, at that level of schooling. So I suppose, it, is it, I appreciate if it's, if it's a prep department as part of a wider school, but w if it's a separate one, does that cover? Are we, are we covering all instances? At the moment, the intention wouldn't be covering those separate entities that are, are just covering that very early years. Um, it would be where it's part of a, a school and, and that is being um, covered within that, that institution. I suppose what, what we want to try and avoid is that we have multiple individuals, small entities, um, you know, that are, are having to be involved as, as part of this process. Um, in terms of further matters, just the in section five or clause, sorry, um, yeah, subsection five regulations under the section mentally provision involvement such further matters as the department considers appropriate. 
Is there any example of what that would look like? There isn't anything, I suppose, specific intended in relation to that at the moment. Um, the, the purpose, really, of having that in there, and, and I suppose because the detail of it is still to be worked out, if there's something further that we consider needs to be covered in the regulations that we haven't specifically specified, mm -hmm. what we don't want is, is you know, basically for the, the powers to be restricted or limited in that, in that sense. So that's really the purpose of um, that subsection 5. So it is, there isn't anything specifically identified to be covered there as of, as of yet, if, if that makes sense. Thank you. And finally, I think this was brought up by another member during the debate um, last Tuesday with regard to any conversations that got on with education um, in a different section, in a different group. Um, with any, has there been any communication with this on schools or unions or the education committee or the Department of Education? been discussions with Department of Education, Education Authority, um, and obviously um, there's ongoing work in relation to the pilot in the South Down area in, in terms of kind of the, the schools that would be covered there. So the um, task and finish group that's been set up to look at this operation and compass pilot includes officials from health, education, education authority, uh, police, voluntary and community sector. So they've been involved in those discussions as we've, we've went along. Okay, and then, but in terms of this amendment, in terms, apologies, in terms of the amendment itself, that has been shared with um, colleagues in the Department of Education and Department for Employment, um, and also with some of the members of that task and finish group. Chair, just all three. Yeah, Chair. Uh, so back to Rachel's point about the early years. So you'll have a scenario. We probably all can account for a scenario where you have a village where there's the preschool in a school, and then you have the independent preschool. And there's the competition every year as to what child gets into what, and one's always the lesser than the other. Probably with regards to what school the child will go to, all of those scenarios play in, and you could end up with a disadvantaged group of families uh, if the other independent preschool isn't covered. Having said that, I'm not sure that Operation Compass. It's designed to give that. So the way I look at this is that you have a child of school age who could well have the potential to get into trouble with a teacher because the authority at school is much greater than preschool. Um, and it was all about making sure the child didn't spiral out of, out of control or further get into further trouble. So I'm not really sure that the potential is there at preschool for that damage to occur. Uh, but I can see there could be a complete differential here in a village setting, whereby you have two establishments, both, of, both providing early years. Uh, so I think we do need to have some more thought to that. What I don't want is every child minder in the country having access to information. And also then you have to look at varying degrees of qualification with regards to child minding and, and teaching and everything else that goes with it. So I'm still teasing that out in my head. The one question I have is this. Uh, should we have, not saying we should, but should we have a responsibility on the, on the person who obtains the information? Uh, I, I, I give you an example of the Child Protection Disclosure Scheme, which you know I know all about. Uh, I keep talking about it. Um, but if a parent is to obtain information, there is a responsibility of the, on them 
not to go up to the local pub or restaurant and tell Jimmy Hardnuckles, tell somebody else, tell their family member. That would probably come under the unauthorised disclosure. Are you thinking in terms of somebody obtains this information and uses it for a purpose or, or yeah, other other than protecting other the child? Than? Yeah, no, that would be covered by the um, the unauthorised disclosure provision. So it would at four um, C, sorry, four E. Within, within the amendment? Within yeah, yes. so regulating or limiting the use or disclosure of information by a relevant person or a designated person and specifying offences and penalties for unauthorised use or disclosure. So that one is essentially in there to kind of say you can only use this for the purposes of the child's welfare in the school yes. and it can't be used for any other purpose. And if it were to be used for something else, you know, there, there potentially is offences and penalties associated with that. So. Pat the nail on the head. Thank you very much and thank you for your work on all of these. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Yeah. Uh, just in relation to the relevant person is mentioned, uh, could that be someone other than the PSNI? My understanding that at present, after such an incident happens, say at night, that the police will report that information, obviously, onto a database and through an email system, including social services, like, you know, for example, in the, in the morning. And that, that information is at the moment being fed into the, the system, maybe not directly to the school, but in perhaps in some cases it, it would go to the school where picked up by the. It's a child protection or a child safeguarding issue at the moment. That information would be coming in and would, would be shared with police and you know with police and social services that would be involved in um, in that instance. So if there's kind of child protection, almost I suppose a yeah. higher level of of concern or, or issues. Yeah. Um, social services would be involved in that at the moment. Yeah, but in this case, when you relevant person is the intention that will lie with the PSNI solely. The, the intention is that certainly at the moment the the intention would be that that's when we're talking about relevant person, it's really police, and when we're talking about designated person, that will be the um, you know authorised individuals within school, college, uh, a training facility, and, and by and large that's what we're thinking of um, when we're making reference to relevant person and, and designated person. So it's likely to be the child protection officer or yeah. teacher within yeah. a school or organisation? Obviously the sharing of that information will have to be, you know, it'll be a, a very, very limited number of individuals that that information will go to, just given the, the nature of it. Because it is obviously sensitive? Yeah. You know, it is the point that's been made as well. It could be used in the wrong sense, you know, and just rumour in the rumour mill and so yeah. on. No, it, it, you know, it, it, I suppose that's what we want to, we'll want to make clear in, in the regulations. You know, these are this is for very specified purposes that this information is going from place to a school, and it's only to be used for that purpose. So, if something happened and an individual becomes aware that that information has been told to somebody else or um, you know disclosed in in some other manner that's unrelated to that, there would then be the provision within the the legislation to you know to, to take something forward in, in relation to that breach. Considering the scale of the issue, the police locally would tell you, you know, it's a huge issue and one of the biggest problems of to deal with at all different levels. Will they be able to use their discretion as to whether they would report the information or not? Police would, I would imagine, at a, at a practical level, um, will look at it in the context of what is the incident that they've been out at, you know, and, and what the impact is on the child. Um, you know, I suppose the, the purpose of the scheme really is to ensure that if something has happened which will impact on that child or you know, will, will give cause to some concern the next day to make sure that the, the school is, is made aware of that and, and it's brought to its attention. 
and obviously the police will be part of the training for the PSNI. Yeah, there will have to be yeah. work undertaken in relation to that in, in terms of... I think we've made the point before. We don't want to see a police car driving up and, and jumping out and, and even you know, entering the building, and so, which obviously in most communities the police do because they yeah. visit schools regularly and, and we encourage it more and more with neighbourhood policing, but just what can sometimes be perceived, what, what is happening. Yeah. So. And really, I suppose, in, in terms of how this works in practice, this is almost a, an add-on or supplementary to the work that the police are already doing. So, you know, it, whether they've been called out to a house or a property, um, you know, I suppose that there shouldn't be anything additional over and above what is already happening in, in terms of the police response to incidents. And then in terms of the information sharing with schools, um, I'm not involved in the, the smaller group that's, that's kind of looking at the operationalisation of the pilot, but I would imagine a lot of that will done be either by email communication or by telephone with the, the, the school. So, you know, there, there shouldn't be additional police activity as a result of this in terms of a very obvious presence, if, if that's what you're concerned about. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, Chair. Okay, Sinead Bradley. I'm not mute. sure if you're on mute, yep. Sinead, if you could just check. I take the department's um, point about the regulations. You know, and I, I was, as Linda pointed out, I was concerned about, you know, if we go back to the pure objective of um, Operation Encompass, it's about uh, letting the person who's in front or in charge of that child on that day know that there could be an issue, you know, and, and to give some latitude, I suppose, to any, how it might manifest, manifest behaviourally. In that point and I understand that goes in regulations and there are good processes already in schools regarding safeguarding officers and child protection so I'm satisfied that it could land in the right place but I just think it's important to have the conversation that it does and um, but moving on to the conversation then about it not including preschool in rural areas where the primary school might be smaller there tends to be a lot of um, requirement for the preschool to be a standalone um, unit or place. And my interpretation on reading this, Veronica, um, before you're, you expanded on it, was that it referred to any other body or facility which provides education or training programmes. And to my mind, that did take in that preschool group. And I was satisfied with that. So I am a little bit um, disappointed to say the least, because you're talking about a child here who is four years of age. That is an age where if there's been an incident, the child may present in a way um, that could be disruptive or perceived to be disruptive. And I think there really would be a duty um, of good practice to include those preschool settings. Now, I appreciate then when you go to a younger age set and you're talking more about childcare, um, perhaps at, at those younger ages, it would be even harder to... Um, monitor the behaviour, whether the child would act out in that sense. But certainly the preschool, I think, is critical to this. So I wouldn't be satisfied if it wasn't um, caught in this amendment. I don't know if you want to elaborate any more on that, Veronica, you know, how you broke away from that. I think it's that um, C2. 
In terms of C2, the intention around that is really to, or the intention of, of that provision as such is really around capturing further education colleges training programs that would be undertaken by individuals that are aged 16 or 17. So that's the, albeit that it, that it is broad and, and could capture more than that, but that's the intent in terms of what we captured within that. Certainly in terms of the preschools, um, we can have further discussions with colleagues in the Department of Education if, if that's helpful. Um, and, and uh, you know, have further discussions with them in, in relation to the, the scope. Thank you, Veronica. Uh, Chair, I think that's essential. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I'll just, in terms of the amendment that was passed by the Assembly, it is explicit in forming the school. So, I suppose I just want to say we. I think, Veronica, there's been good work done by the department on this one. There's maybe some issue here just on the margins, but in terms of where members came from on this, we said school. This is now trying to flesh that out. Um, so I think, to be fair to the department, um, there has been good work to do that. There, there may be something here in the margins we just need to tie down. Linda? I agree with what you're saying, Chair. I think that the Department have actually done excellent work in relation to this. I'm delighted that this got in. We we were a bit concerned about the scope, and it, and it got in there, and the Department have actually improved it, in my view. I think that um, both Rachel and Sinead are right. If it is possible to get in the preschools, I think going to that childcare setting you know, and going down that road could be much more complex, and I would have actually have concerns around that, to be honest. Um, and I just think that we could be making this, I suppose, taking it outside of its intent. And I mean, even some of, of what, what Gordon said, I was, and that's why I had actually indicated I wanted to come in, because I was a wee bit concerned we're going further than the intent of Operation Encompass. Operation Encompass is a very simple, straightforward intent. Skill setting. There are safeguarding and child protection um, in place for those children who, who need that, and absolutely that that's within health and that's where it should fit and, and we need to have that. But this is where there would potentially be seen to be no child protection or no safeguarding issue, but it is about giving another level to protect children in terms of what we talk about the the ACEs, mm -hmm. you know, and, and those adverse childhood experiences. And I do think it has a big, big impact. It has a big impact even on children who do not come from a background where they've had domestic abuse how a teacher speaks to you, deals with a situation in the classroom, has a massive impact on the child for the rest of their lives. So these are particularly vulnerable children. So we want to do what we can to protect them. So that's what Operation Encompass is about. That's what the intent of it is. And I think that the department has captured that very well. And as I say, actually improved on the, on the amendment from the committee. But I would certainly, if it's possible, to do it in the in the preschool setting, but the childcare setting, I think, would just be going that that step too far and make taking this away from what its actual intent its intent is. Because certainly, if there are child protection issues or child safeguarding issues, they will be dealt with in the childcare setting and as they should be. But for me, this this is a good piece of work. But if if we can include the preschool, that would be that would be good. And we'll discuss further with colleagues in the Department of Education. Okay, well, I think we're not far away from okay. consensus on the committee on this. Now, we will formalise that, Veronica, on this amendment 
after this and then communicate that, I suppose, to the departments so that you know precisely what it is that we're, we're asking. Um, so do you want to take us on to the next amendment then? So the next one is uh, Clause 26, so protection, protective measures for victims of abuse. Um, again, this is a substitute amendment in relation to the interim protections. Um, measure that's in the bill at the moment and is intended to deal, you, I suppose, again, similar to the, the Operation Encompass one, um, to just flesh out in more detail in, in terms of what it will authorise us to do um, in, in terms of regulations. Uh, the Minister has obviously already indicated that our preference will be to take this through the, the miscellaneous provisions bill, but what we do need to ensure is that if, if this power were to be utilised, that um, I suppose it's as, as robust as, as possible in, in terms of the scope of it. Um, so again, I'll, I'll just kind of run through the, the um, subsections in, in terms of the, the clause itself. So it, it's basically enabling the department by regulations, um, you know, to make provision in terms of steps or measures that can be taken to protect an individual from abusive behaviour, um, and any other such steps or measures that may be needed in relation to that. It then goes on to um, look at um, it covering both abusive behaviour or risk of abusive behaviour. Um, so the ab abusive behaviour doesn't necessarily need to have. Um, to have happen, but it, it will cover both. Um, the next provision is looking at it in the context of abusive behaviour and personal connection in terms of the individuals that will be captured by this will be the same as is set out in, in the bill more generally. Um, subsection 4 um, is making provision that the scope of the provisions would be able to cover both alleged behaviour as well as proven behaviour, so they wouldn't necessarily have to... Um, to, to, to be convictions, and I suppose to try and make that as, as wide as possible. Um, setting out that the um, applicants would be age 16 or over, um, and the, the perpetrators or alleged perpetrators that it would apply to would be 18 or over. Um, we also want to ensure that in terms of associated um, children, um, that they can be covered as, as well in, in relation to this. Uh, subsection 5. Um, is looking at, in relation to the, the notices which would be issued by police, um, setting out provision to enable us to cover um, how those notices are given, the grounds for giving them prohibitions and requirements. So in terms of the prohibitions, it will be things like an individual not contacting the person, staying away from them, not to be going into the property or potentially having to leave a property. And then in terms of the requirements, um, and, and there will be a, a draft consultation paper coming to the committee on this, hopefully we'll issue tomorrow um, for your, your meeting next week, in terms of the positive requirements that may also be associated with this. So in, in the longer term, the intention would be that this could cover things like behavioural change programmes, substance use programmes, or potentially electronic monitoring. Um, so aspects, I suppose there's, there's two strands to it in terms of protections for individuals and then also um, potentially being able to incorporate elements that would address um, abusive behaviour of individuals. Subsection 6 is um, covering, similar to subsection 5, uh, provisions in relation to the orders which would be made by the courts as opposed to the notices which would be issued by police, um, and looking again at the, the grounds, prohibitions and requirements that may be associated with them. Um, there's also um, provision that will enable us to look at who can apply, whether or not applications are needed, and also the ability of the court to bring forward um, orders of their own volition. Um, and then a, a number of provisions in relation to kind of the procedural aspects as well as um, elements in relation to, to court rules. Subsection 7 um, is dealing with instances where you may have an individual 
um, who is potentially, in say for argument's sake, England or Wales or Scotland, um, and is abusing a, an individual locally. So I suppose it, it's trying to ensure that the um, abusive behaviour isn't necessarily limited to individuals who are in Northern Ireland, but it, the provision will ensure that the, um, the offence has to be within the remit of um, the Northern Ireland jurisdiction, obviously. Um, section 8 is dealing with notification requirements. Um, so essentially the intention would be that uh, where you have orders being made, individuals would have to give their name, address, etc. to the police. And there's provision there that um, other information could be made. Um, there, there could be a requirement for other information to be made available um, as necessary. Then goes on to deal with issues around breaches of the, the notices and orders, powers of arrest, um, bringing individuals before the court, um, and potentially sentences that may be associated with that. Um, uh, subsection 10 is dealing with um, uh, processes or procedures that may be needed in order to identify um, an individual's identity where these notices and orders are being used. Makes provision in relation to statutory guidance and then similar to the operation encompass type um, provision, there's provision there that you know such other matters as may be necessary can be covered and, and also the ability to, to look at, at changes that, that may be needed as, um, to other legislation as a result of this. That, broadly speaking, is, is kind of some of the, the enabling powers that we have. Um, again, similar to the, um, the Operation Compass type approach, um, what we're trying to do with this is very much build and um, build upon and, 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 and strengthen the amendment that have been put forward by the, the committee and, and just setting out in, in more detail what we would be able to um, deal with in, in terms of any regulations that would be brought forward. Okay. A couple, couple of questions, I suppose, on it. Um, in terms of the list of different forms of regulations that will come, would that be then all of the regulations the department would envisage being required under the broad umbrella of a DAPO or protection notice? Essentially, the the reference to each of the, the in each of the subsections to regulations, the intention would be that if if you were doing this by a regulation making power, you essentially would bring this forward as as probably one large regulation. It, it wouldn't be separate regulations as such, um, and it would basically be given the authority for the notices and the orders to be made. Sorry, Chair, I'm, I'm perhaps not, not quite grasping what no, your question no. is. Um, no, no, you, you have. Uh, I suppose it leads me on to my next question. As, as the bill now currently sits with the committee amendment, I'm trying to establish the difference. You know, how, how does this amendment improve you know, or add to, um, because the committee amendment asks for regulations to be laid by way of a resolution of the assembly. So currently, there's a very broad piece of legislation now in place um, that whatever regulations come in order to give effect to the creation of DAPOs, that's going to come through the assembly. These amendments still give that power for regulations that will come through the Assembly. However, it's broken down in, in more specificity and more detail. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to ask myself, why is that necessary? Um, because the same provision is in, in these further amendments for two years, just as the committee amendment said, for two years. So obviously, I'm just trying to get my head around why you've needed to put these in, because obviously this is a very substantive amendment. 
you know, in terms of the, the broad detail that's in it, and it's being brought in at further consideration stage, which limits the ability to, to give it the kind of scrutiny that I think the amount of detail that's in this is required. And the minister herself said these issues, um, even at consideration stage, um, would require a lot more scrutiny, debate, and preference being primary legislation. So it seems to jar with the logic that was being I suppose in, in terms of the, the detail that's there and the content, it's, it's probably akin to some of the issues that we would have raised previously in relation to the Operation Encompass one, that there's a, a, a very real risk that without the detail being set out, you won't necessarily have the varies or the authority to take forward in regulations all that we need to do. Um, and I suppose common to probably both provisions and one of the easiest ones to probably um, reference is the likes of um, offences and penalties. That if you're doing things like that, which potentially, and, and I suppose particularly in, in the, the nature and, and form of this, where we're doing things that potentially will impact upon the human rights of individuals, if we don't set out that detail in, in terms of what it is that we want to cover in the regulations, <coughs> we may end up in a situation where while there's a, a provision on the statute book that allows us to make regulations, that we can't actually do everything that we need to do without kind of having given an indication, you know, as we've done in this amendment, as to what exactly it is that, that we're going to be covering. I know, I know certainly from a, a, um, a departmental solicitor's perspective, the, the one that they would always kind of refer to is when you're doing things like breaches, or, sorry, when you're doing things around penalties and offences, you know, there's a need to have um, an indication in the, the primary legislation as to what it is that you will want to do in your um, secondary legislation. So that's kind of really the, the, the main reasoning for that added detail being going in here. It's to ensure that if we and, and, and as you say, the Minister has already indicated her preferences to do this through the, the miscellaneous provisions bill. I suppose what we didn't want was a situation whereby if this power had to be used, that we didn't have the necessary authority um, to do that level of detail in the regulations. So how does the current bill not give you the varies? Because the regulations, 24 months on commencement, for the purposes of protecting and supporting the victim of an alleged victim. It's a very broad piece of legislation, so I'm struggling to understand that advice that the DSO has given. Again, and I suppose really in, in terms of some of the things that we would want that we would want to be undertaking. Um, and as I say, they have indicated that without kind of a further stipulation within the legislation as to what we may want to do. You could end up in a situation when you bring those regulations forward that it's deemed that there isn't the authority to do some of the um, the, the detail that we that we have set out in this. And as I say, it's it, kind of the key one that they've indicated in relation to us is, is really around where you're doing things like offences, penalties, that you would have something like that on the face of legislation as opposed to um, you know that, that there would be an indication or a marker put down as to, as to what it is that you're looking to do. As I say, the, the, the purpose of this is, is very much to try and ensure that, that we don't run into any difficulties when we would, if should we need to bring regulations forward under this. Chair okay. has covered, covered my first question. Just in relation to um, four, you had said, I think during your presentation, that it would be protection for persons who are over 18 years. But it's, it says in the amendment that it's over 16 years. So just clarity around that. Yes. Yeah, so the the victim aspect is in, in terms of a, a victim applying who's aged um, 
16 or over, and where the alleged perpetrator is 18 or over. Um, I know the intention is um, what we want to ensure is that we're able to make provision in relation to associated children. So, for example, if there are our children living in that house, we would also want the, the protection to be extended to them. But this is in terms of, I suppose, um, those who are applying for the, the notices or orders that they're age 16 or over. And as I say, the offender has to be 18 or over. That's in line then with the other clauses. That is in line with the other clauses. Yeah. I need to go back over them myself. Sorry about that. Okay. Paul? Yeah. Uh, so can I ask, Veronica, is, is, the, is it the minister's, still the minister's intention to bring this in at the miscellaneous bill stage? Yes. So it is. That would be her. That's her preference. Yes. But as I say, what we don't want is a situation. You know, should anything happen, and, and yeah. she's already talked about those unforeseen circumstances. What we wouldn't want is that we can't actually use this power effectively. Should this have to be utilised? But but yes, her her intention is to do it through the, the miscellaneous provisions bill. So it's still the minister's intention to do that. So this is secondary. This would be the second best option, probably, for the minister. And what you're saying is you're basically. Tightening it all up, you're adding all these specified actions through regulation. So that in, the, in, in case it's needed, so if something happens to the miscellaneous bill, either not been moved or been amended in some way, shape or form, or omitted in some shape or form, then you still have this as backup. Yeah. Uh, it's very comprehensive, I must say. Does it? Is there anything in this new amendment that? Doesn't do what we ask of clause 26. No, I don't. I don't think so, Paul. Um, I'll just double check. But it, as the, the chair has indicated, that provision was quite. Um, it was quite broad. Mm -hmm. um, but no, we're, in, in terms of certainly what the committee intent was, and, and our understanding of that provision was that it was effectively to enable protection notices and orders to be brought forward. It, it's it's doing what the the committee wants it to do. And, and it still allows you the flexibility to bring in measures other than court orders. The provision is drafted will will cover notices and orders. Um, it's making reference to um, steps, so enabling or requiring steps to be taken or measures to be imposed for protecting an individual. So it'll 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 tie back to protection measures in in relation to victims of abusive behaviour. Because I think all of us in the committee were mindful that dabbles might not be the way forward. Mm. And that's why that, uh, in the face of the bill now, 26.2b was important to us. Uh, and, and that's why we were affording the Minister so much flexibility and wide, wide parameters in this, so that we wouldn't tire down to uh, court orders or dabbles, and that we could open that up to a, 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 wider, a wider tool being used. So, you're giving us that assurance that there's nothing then in that 26, as it stands in the face of the bill, that will not be able to be done then with this new, more comprehensive amendment? Well, I suppose as, as drafted, the focus of that provision is on the notices and orders. Yes. You know, that, that would be very much the, the intent of that, that provision, so it would. I can remember the Minister chastising me on the floor of the House with regards to creating a duplication for you guys. I, th I think I responded to say, look, a clause can be, an amendment can be made up in a day, and, and you proved me right, so uh, thank you for that. Thanks, Chair. Mm -hmm. Rachel. Thank you. Um, just to confirm, um, just to try and get my head around this, so 
The, the amendment that we're looking at, the new clause, is this modelled on the domestic abuse protection orders and notices that are in England and Wales? We've looked at that one and also looked at the, the provisions in Scotland that are being brought forward, which are a variation on the, the England and Wales approach, but by and large is, is reflecting um, the notices and orders in England and Wales. We've heard quite loud and clear that there's been some issues with those, so, and that perhaps the emergency borrowing orders system that Scotland's going down is much better. Again, it's a new system, but the, the feedback from England and Wales is that they haven't been 100%. Um, now, obviously, nothing is 100%, but they, that there have been significant issues with them. So, I would be concerned that we're putting something in a bill that has already been shown not to be as, as effective. But in terms of those concerns, um, and, and I suppose in, in we've had discussions with voluntary and community sector partners as well as our statutory partners in relation to the proposals, if, if that provides reassurance to the, the committee. I think the concerns in relation to England and Wales are around, and, and as, as we will have written to the committee previously in relation to this, are around the domestic violence protection notices and orders, the fact that those are limited in what they can apply to, the extent to which they're being used, the extent to which there is training. Um, so the concern is really around those current violence notices and orders. Um, and I suppose in, in England and Wales, the abuse notices and orders are being brought forward to ensure that there's a much broader scope. So it's not limited just to physical violence against an individual. It will also cover um, abusive behaviour. And certainly, you know, what we will want to ensure in, in terms of um, these measures being introduced is that concerns that there have been in, in relation to provisions more generally are, are picked up on and addressed. In terms of the Scottish approach, um, they published legislation, I think, a month or two months ago. Um, they haven't went for the, their provisions. Probably aren't as expansive in that um, they're looking simply at the protection elements. So basically, barring contact an individual from a property, etc., etc. They haven't went down the route of looking at um, the, the positive requirements element. Um, you know, so potentially trying to address the, the behaviour of an individual. Um, having said, you know, so as I say, they've. they've brought forward a slightly different model, but it is still looking at it in the context of um, notices and orders, albeit with a, a slightly different um, slant to the, the England and Wales one. But as I say, we, and we have had discussions with voluntary and community sector partners, with statutory partners in relation to this, and certainly my understanding is that the concerns, and, and Rachel, as you're alluding to, in relation to this, the concerns are very much about those current orders, the limitations of them, and, and how they're working in practice. And I suppose the, the abuse notices and orders being brought forward in England and Wales are to address um, address those issues and, and the reason why we didn't go for um, bringing forward those violence notices and, and orders in the interim. Um, I obviously can't speak for, for voluntary sector partners, but they were um, generally supportive of, of what we were, were proposing. Okay. Um, so the consultation that is being proposed on the introduction of protection orders and notices, is this based on this clause? It, it will reflect what the, the intent is as, as set out in, in that clause. I will go through the, the details of it in, in terms of um, protections that may be afforded, positive requirements that there may be, etc. And if consultation comes back and says there's, there's fundamental gaps or problems or that we need something else, there's room then through a miscellaneous provisions bill? Yes, you could, you could look at that at the, the miscellaneous provisions bill stage if... Um, you know, if, if, if it was considered that, that something further or supplementary was needed in relation to this. Okay. Um, the, 
the age thing again. They 18, you have to they apply in relation to perpetrators or alleged perpetrators of abusive behaviour who are at least 18 years of age, yet you can apply for one if you are 16 and over. Why is the age distinction 16 and 18? In terms of the, um, the victim, I suppose we, we didn't want to be straying into child protection measures, so that's the reason why we went for a, a, an age 16 um, threshold in relation to that. As far as I can recall, um, and I will double check and come back on that if it's, if it's incorrect, my understanding is that um, age 18 is the threshold in the other jurisdictions in relation to the, the perpetrators, but I, I'll, I'll look at that again and, and clarify. Okay, no, I appreciate that, but our bill doesn't make any distinction on age of perpetrator. Whereas England and Wales does. England and uh, Wales is 10 and over as well as ours for perpetrators for their course of control offence. So uh, that's it, just what I'm struck because our clause is one to four and who, what amounts to abusive behaviour and who, what the meaning of behaviour and the meaning of personal commitment connection in the domestic abuse offence then in, in five there's no age threshold on it so if you were met all those criteria committed the offence met all of that but and you were an alleged perpetrator but you'd have to be at 17 the victim couldn't apply for uh, an order because if they were 16 I'm thinking about couples who live say couples who live together who are 16 and 17 or both 17 year olds uh, an order or notice wouldn't be able to be sought because the perpetrator isn't 18. You get me through? Yeah. So it's just that art, that distinction. I understand in terms of child protection mm -hmm. and we have that then within the um, when we change that at the consideration stage with regard to the Adrian's um, exception regarding aggravation to cover the Children and Young Persons Act, but to have a, an arbitrary distinction between 16 and 17 year olds in terms of being a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. That's surely, I, I, and, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, I've just, it's just reading that, it, it, it then calls into the age again. So it, it's the younger couples that don't qualify and if that can be teased out just to make sure that it does but currently under those or those that, that clause could a 17 year old in a relationship with a 17 year old apply for a DAPO DAPN and be got one not in, ter in terms of the, the provisions as they are, it's an 18 and over that it will apply to in, in terms of the, the perpetrator. As I say, I'm, I'm nearly sure it's a, a similar age threshold in the, the other jurisdictions, but we'll check that and come back. Okay. Just, there's, a age, there's a thresh different threshold in Scotland, obviously, because it's partner and ex-partner. That's the personal connection. And then England and Wales is different obviously their their legislation is still going through so it it does they, there is an age or there's an arbitrary distinction between age in the different jurisdictions because it's different legislation whereas ours doesn't provided that clauses one to four are met and the meaning of personal connection is met so it's just to try and low england and wales in terms of the offender and the victim has the same approach as ours so the offender for the course of control offense in england and wales is 10 or over right. and, and their offense can and apply this the same way. Yeah, but does that make it right in terms of 
does it protect young couples or a, a young victim in a couple relationship or any other type of relationship in my mm -hmm. personal connection do we need to have it as 18 and above being the the age range of a perpetrator can it not be 16 and above given everything else is 16 covered in certainly we can we can look at that again so we can just unless it does cover it then that's okay but it's just to try and make sure that you're covering those situations because we've created we have this arbitrary distinction between 16 and 18 um, and it's those 16 and above if you're 17 and a victim but your perpetrator is 17 you can't get a DAPO, DAPN or EBO or whatever we want to call it so what what you know it, what can you do if, if, if it is just the age range um would certainly appreciate any any further information on that one just to bear that off no that's fine that's all sure she needs bradley thanks chair chair i won't go over the, that age issue i had similar concerns on that and i would appreciate veronica just some clarity on it because it it was a lot um to try and fit in and see how it, it tallied up against other provisions in the bill as Linda said. But I suppose um, you know, I do welcome the fact that this is on the face of the bill and I note what you said about it um being good practice that it should be on the face of the bill, particularly if there was uh, regulations or anything to be built around offences and penalties. So accepting that, then I wonder does it um go further than that? Are you actually maybe being a little bit too prescriptive here for the department in the longer term? And what I look at, um, for example, you know, one of the things I looked at in the committee amendment, can you show me where, um, Veronica, in the new amendment 2B is? I know Paul touched on it um, because I'm not over it in terms of where it mirrors the intent that was expressed at consideration stage. And I don't know where 2B sits in the proposed amendment. On another issue, I'll maybe come back to that. On another issue then, just I'm just trying to step back then and see what's happening here. So would it be fair to say that if the minister still does intend to really um, capture all of this, through the miscellaneous provisions bill and the timing of the consultation. I know you said you were going to feed back to us, but when that feedback of the consultation comes to us, surely it's going to be too late then for us to in any way satisfy ourselves that that's reflected um, in any amendments before next Wednesday. So is this almost a holding position or a bridging position um, in which case you know, perhaps we can um, just recognise the fact of what it's trying to do and therefore be less prescriptive and try and lean into that offences and penalties part that you spoke of, but maybe not as heavily as you have done. Um, or is it likely that this is going to be the go-to place for DAPOs, etc.? I suppose, sorry, Veronica. Yeah. 
Certainly in the, in the discussions that um, we've had with voluntary and community sector partners and, and with statutory partners, I, I think that's viewed very much as the, the direction of travel in, in terms of a desire to see these um, abuse notices and orders brought forward. I suppose that's what we were trying to, to reflect in the amendment and ensure that we had, as I say, we had the necessary authority for that. Um, you know, so that's the, the focus in, in terms of the amendment at the moment. Okay, so in terms of then the 2B in our original? In terms of 2B, if it was something other than, than court orders, it probably would be limited in ability to do something other than the notices and orders in, in terms of the, the current amendment. And as I say, that really has been directed by the, the discussions and conversations that we've had with partners in relation to this. Okay, I, I, I do welcome it and I see the body of work that's there and I recognise it, but I wonder is it um, just being so pres prescriptive that we're losing the intention as expressed? And I also am not fully clear about um, the Minister's intention for the miscellaneous bill. Is that, is that just intended to override this? The intention in, in, from the Minister's perspective would be to bring these measures forward through the Miscellaneous Provisions Bill. Um, as I say, really, the, um, the expanded amendment here is to ensure that should, for whatever reason, and there were unforeseen circumstances that meant the Miscellaneous Provisions Bill didn't go through, what we want to ensure is that we would be able to, bring, we would be able to use this, that this would give us the necessary authority in relation to that. But certainly the Minister's intent is to do this through the, the miscellaneous provisions bill as opposed to having to, to utilise um, this regulation making power. Okay. Would it be fair then to say, Veronica, um, based on that, that the committee's amendment, as is on the face of the bill, with a further amendment that speaks to those uh, that piece around offences and penalties, may be a more desirable landing place for the bill at this stage, given that we know the miscellaneous provision is going to carry up the detail at a later time. I think the, the difficulty of... When we don't lose the 2B, you know, we could factor that in. We could certainly, I suppose, you know, what, what, I suppose the, the difficulty of going back to something that's more akin to the committee amendment and incorporating something in relation to offences and penalties, I think there is still a very serious risk that you wouldn't have the necessary authority to do all that you needed to do or wanted to do in, in terms of um, bringing regulations forward. But certainly what we can do is go back and have um, discussions with council in terms of is there a way in which we can try I suppose, and incorporate the detail that there is in the provision at the moment, but also, um, you know, is there a way in which we can try and encapsulate that bit around 2B? Can that be brought into the provision as well? I don't have a sense of, as to what their, their, their response may be in relation to that, but certainly I'm, I'm more than happy that, that we would go and have conversations with them in relation to that, if, if that is a concern for committee. Thanks, Veronica. Thank you, Chair. And if I'm following that line of thinking clearly for Anika, maybe um, subsection 12 which gives regulations under this section may include provision involving such further matters as the department considers appropriate so you know, you've tried to put out in as much detail areas of regulations that would cover this but does 12 give me a bit of comfort to say if something else arises 
then you're still able to, to provide for that? My sense would be that in, in terms of 12, that that's really giving you um, additional scope and provision in relation to kind of the detail of what's scoped out or set out in, in the main clause. I'm, I don't think it would necessarily provide the necessary comfort in, in relation to 2B to allow us to do something radically different, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so it, it may be better that we have a conversation with council in terms of is it possible to have something which will essentially set out the, the detail in, in relation to the, um, the, the DAPANs and, and DAPOs, but which may also enable us more broadly to have a provision in terms of something other than this. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know how well that, that can sit in legislation and essentially having a clause which is saying, on the one hand, we want to be able to do this, on the other hand, we want to do something completely different. Although um, that would incorporate what's now currently in play, yeah. what, because that's the way it has been left. So on the one hand, you're going to give more detail, but you still leave a degree of openness there for other things so as I say certainly we can have a, a conversation with council in, in terms of whether or not it is possible to um, you know to, to give that added flexibility and, and to try and, and better reflect um, what's in 26 to be the I'm going to bring Paul in a minute before he bursts a blood vessel <laughs> he, he looks like the minister putting the hand up and down <laughs> trying to intervene it's on a big him. room chair <laughs> but for clarity, the, it wouldn't be this, these, this amendment that's being brought to the miscellaneous bill. It would be an amendment that lays out in primary legislation the substantive regulations. It would set out the substantive okay. detail that, yeah. that this provision would basically be saying we could cover in regulations. Yeah. The detail of that would then be set out on the face of the bill. But the, the, the broad, the, the intent would be, and, and as we say, subject to the outcome of consultation as to what exactly that would look like, but the intent would be that the primary legislation would, would encapsulate what's covered in that um, regulation, and that, or sorry, that regulation making power at the moment, albeit there would be a lot more detail in it. Yeah. Okay. Paul, and then. Ah, oh, I can breathe now. Uh, you know, I, I agree with Sinead. Sinead, uh, well, no, sorry, I, I, don't, I don't mind the comprehensive detail on this new amendment. I agree with Sinead in every other uh, case she raises. You have incorporated ORS, the, amendment, the, sorry, the new clause 26 as amended by the committee. You have incorporated subsection 1. You are now using that as 14 in your new amendment. Subsection 3 is now the new 15 in your amendment. You have, you have left out measures other than court orders, and that does that does weaken the intent of our amendment. And I suppose from, from our perspective, um, and, and apologies if, if that is um, how this is viewed, I suppose we felt that we were reflecting what was the intent underpinning the committee amendment. But as I say, you know, more than happy that we have further um, discussions with council in, in relation to how it may yeah. be possible to incorporate 2B. And I agree with your sentiments around 12, subsection 12, because I think that adds to everything that you talk about it's gone before, gone before. Yeah. so I think that's right. So I do think we need something in there that gives you the option to go for something other than court orders. Uh, and certainly, so, we're happy to yeah, happy to have that conversation. It, it, it As I say, our, our our thinking had been that what the committee had wanted was the abuse notices and orders provided for. So, but, that, we'll, but we'll certainly look at, at that in terms of is it is it possible to incorporate that to be into the provision? And I do appreciate all the detail. I really do. That that's not the issue. And 
I suppose I lay that down the intent that if, if, if the Department feels they can't or won't add in measures other than court orders, I will probably get the intention here now give you a notice that I probably seek to amend the amendment in that regard. And I don't, I, I don't think we will have a difficulty in, in terms of making provision for that. It, it's really, um, it's more the conversation with the legislative draft person in, in terms of how that all sits. Um, certainly, there, there's not an issue from our perspective in, in terms of reflecting that with, within the provision. And I suppose what I would say also, and, and this applies more generally, is what we would be very keen is to avoid a situation where, in terms of these amendments that we have put forward, um, you know, that we're having committee amendments and, and departmental amendments. I think the preference would be that. Um, you know, we, we have a measure that um, both the department and the committee is content with. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Linda, are you happy? Yeah, thank you. Some of what I wanted to ask was covered, and specifically that last point. I think if we can get it in there in some way, I just think it does give the department flexibility. Just around the issue that Rachel, and that's what I was asking at the start, and I was confused myself. Am I actually wrong here? <laughs> and I think we both were along the same lines. Or are we getting it wrong because 16 and 18 is in so many different places and I wanted to be sure I was right. probably have the same concerns as Rachel. And it's as much about, um, now for me, the, the, the protection notice and orders were something that was vital because of all the previous concerns I've raised around non-malls and the challenges in accessing them. Um, but the other stuff that you're talking about is actually where you want to be going, where you actually address what is the cause of the abusive behaviour and you, and you work with that person and, and I'm absolutely all day, every day in favour of that. I think it's, it's, it's essential because that's about breaking the cycle. That's about actually helping maybe young people and the people that Rachel are talking about, maybe the 17-year-old who's in a relationship with another 17-year-old. It's all the same all their life. That, that's, that's the point they're coming from. But for that reason, I think it's as important that they can access that, that they can access that that help in terms of their be abusive behaviour as it is the punitive measures. So, mm -hmm. and we always need to try and, and get that balance. But I, I do think if we can, if we can address those two issues, this this is probably. No, I'm more than happy know, that we that we we're heading in the right direction. So, and, and I mean, from listening to yourself, Monica, that's where you want to be. You want to be able to. We're not we're not far apart on both issues in terms of is there things outside court orders and can we address that that age um, obviously I'll not get into a conversation about it but age of criminal responsibility is a whole other conversation we'll not start today another time but but I do I do think it will be important that, that, that so if we basically look at trying to incorporate in some fashion to be and look at the alleged perpetrator being 16 plus Okay. Sorry. So just to, I would be if if it, if it all works out in terms of the four um, B, it just said for protecting persons who are at least sixteen years of age, and B are to apply in relation to perpetrators or alleged perpetrators of abusive behaviour who are at least sixteen years of age. Just if that if that does what it says, that would be okay. Right. No, certainly we'll, we'll just, look at that again. Can I just say one other thing in relation to that same issue around the age? Could I ask the department to maybe just put a call in to the Children's Commissioner and ask her opinion on it? Yeah, their view on it. Because there might be something that we're not saying in yeah. this. And I would hate that we were actually doing something that's going to be harmful. No, certainly we can have discussions so, with them as well. Yeah, I, I think that it would be good if we, can, if we could do that. Okay. And is committee content that we are guided by them in relation to that? Okay. 
Well, I certainly am. Right, we'll, we, we, on all of these amendments, we'll give you an official committee line once we get that agreed, Veronica. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Um, the next one is the. Uh, sorry, there's a, the guidance on um, data, data collection. That's just the, the removal of um, the provision relating to Operation Encompass, I think, is, is that one. And then the next substantive one is the training provision. So essentially, that's setting out, on, and this is to, to deal with the issue of the onus being on the department to provide training versus an onus being on organisations in relation to this. So it's setting out that. Um, police, PPS and courts uh, must provide training in relation to the effect of um, part one of the bill, which is in relation to the domestic abuse offence and the aggravators, as considered appropriate. But that training must be at least annually. It has to be mandatory um, and undertaken by staff that are involved in staff and personnel that are involved in uh, or have responsibility for dealing with cases involving domestic abuse and the purpose of the training must be in order to ensure that there is effective discharge of their responsibilities in relation to those cases. So, um, as I say, essentially providing the, the, putting the onus on um, those operational organisations um, to provide training um, in order that they can effectively carry out their duties in relation to um, domestic abuse cases. Just a couple of points on this one. I note that this amendment was dropped from the bill, uh, including but not limited to. So this is now exclusively for police service, public prosecution, and Northern Ireland courts. Whereas the bill currently drafted highlights them, but doesn't make it exclusive to. So there's that point, and then the other one is the removal of subsection 4 in terms of having identified the relevant staff. At the beginning of an annual reporting period, the department must publish the uptake of training by each relevant organisation at the end of each year. So I'm certainly sympathetic to um, the other aspects of what the department is doing, but on those two areas, if you can give us a reason. In terms of the, the, I'll take the last one first, Chair. Sure. Um, the reporting bit. Apologies, I, sh I should have flagged that that has now been moved into the general reporting um, requirement provision. So it would be done as part of that report that um, is to be published over a, a three-year period. There's there's reference in um, that amendment or, or that provision um, that would essentially take the reporting on the training would be encapsulated within that um, broader report that would be taken forward. In terms of the organisations that um, are being referenced, um, it, the view was taken, I think, that it's important to focus it in on those who are going to be dealing with um, the progression or uh, uh, handling um, of domestic abuse offence cases under the, the uh, new legislation. So that was why we had um, limited that to the, the, the core organisations in, in terms of, of who are involved with are involved in dealing with um, domestic abuse um, generally and, and or, sorry domestic abuse offence cases um, generally so so that's why we've we've went for those core organizations in relation to this I suppose when we had looked at it in the context of um, other criminal justice organizations that potentially could encapsulate organizations such as forensic services and, and others that that aren't actually involved in dealing with um, domestic abuse offence cases and those being progressed through the courts and also obviously um, uh, other offences where they are aggravated by domestic abuse. So that was the, the intent behind that change. Is it not unnecessarily tight though now? 
I don't, I don't see how Bill is currently drafted now. Places the duty on Disney, for example. You know, the forensic, you, you said that it could, if it, if it went through as currently in the bill, that that could capture forensic services. At the moment, it, it, it would be covering um, placing on criminal justice agencies. So it would encapsulate it broader than those that are listed. Yes, but it has to be relevant to the offence, you know, in terms of those that are engaged in disposing of this type of... Because training is mandatory for all those involved in the disposal of domestic abuse, so there's the, the clarifying part of that. I suppose the, the, the intention of that was really to try and focus it in on those that are, are dealing with these cases going through and, and not to have that... Um, but our intention was to have it widely. That, that's, that's the point of Megan, that this is, to me, this is running counter to the intended purpose of our amendment, that we highlight these, mm -hmm. you know, because that's obviously the primary ones, but it wasn't to be exclusively to them. If it transpired that in the disposal of domestic abuse cases across the criminal justice and policing sphere, other organisations needed to be included, Obviously, we would want that, that. That was the intention behind it. I suppose we, in, in some respects, we struggled to see how other organisations would be involved, and in, other criminal justice organisations would be involved in the, the disposal of cases. If you're looking at it in the context of going from reporting through to those being dealt with at, at court, so then it shouldn't be a problem. That's you. I'll bring in some other members. Um, Sinead Bradley has indicated. Yeah, Chair, just to elaborate a bit on that point, I suppose, Veronica, whenever we included those words, including but not limited to, um, it did allow scope there because it is very hard to preempt with any absolute certainty the outworkings of the bill. And uh, it was one of the issues we raised earlier. The, the oversight of the independent person who looks at that in their recommendations they may have established or identified um, organisations or bar bodies or part of bodies that may require training for good practice going forward. And I suppose my concern would be that the department's amendment doesn't allow for that. Uh, it wouldn't allow for such a recommendation to easily um, be made or enacted. So I suppose just to give some clarification on why we felt it was important to have that, including but not limited to, and I'm not sure that that is reflected, but I think there is good reason um, to consider having it there. So am I right in thinking that the committee intent in relation to that, it, it's not that there's an issue with it being limited to police, PPS and courts at the outset, that, that such other criminal justice agencies was in the context of this potentially needing to be expanded to other bodies in the future if, for example, somebody such as that independent oversight person was flagging something um, in relation to other organisations that needed to be taking something forward? I, I think it's fair that that was one of the considerations. I left the chair elaborate on it, but it was certainly that expansion piece had to be in there for the oversight part. Um, and I, I can see what the department have done there by um, being, I suppose, more detailed and exactly who, but that then could could raise problems further down the line. 
But what I wouldn't want to do, though, is to create a, a condition, though, that it would need to be subject to the independent oversight recommending it. I don't think that was the committee's intent either. No. Um, albeit. No, I don't think it was, yeah. but it is, it, it, it is a, a, I suppose, a positive yeah. outcome from the, the position adopted by the committee. Yeah. It's, I suppose it's a, is the committee content in terms of what are deemed to be the main bodies that those are covered as stipulated, but what is wanted is a power that would enable other organisations to be covered at a future point if that were deemed necessary, as opposed to there are other organisations that you think need to be explicitly covered at this point in time? Well, I go back to um, Veronica. Whenever we were doing our investigatory piece, um, and the, the real success of the Scottish Bill, you know, whenever you spoke to anybody about that, they always put it down to the level of training that was uh, created afterwards. And I think at the outset, as this becomes embedded or starts to be used, I think there was a need to be quite wide um, in who we wanted to be trained. And, you know, people say, well, what level in the organisation? Well, quite frankly, almost every level. You know, from the woman presenting um, to a receptionist or the victim, whoever they might be presenting to the receptionist in an organisation, to have signs of coercive control is critical for this to have any success. So I think we did lean very heavily into the training for very, very good reason. And um, I would like to see it, that it does have that broader piece in it at the outset. Veronica, if there was a way to ensure subsection 3 is incorporated, I think that would be necessary. You know, that says including but not limited to the organisations that you know, you've specified in the department's further consideration amendment. So essentially something that will allow us to expand that list if needed? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we can find a way to incorporate that subsection 3 into that one and we can deal with have some points to raise around the reporting change from three years to one year but I can deal with that in the reporting amendment okay. if you Thank you, Chair, but I think it is just those words that including but not limited Yeah. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Veronica. Anyone else content at this stage on that one? Okay. The next one then um, the next one is the independent oversight function. Um, so this is essentially setting out um, that that individual would report on or, or given a, an assessment um, of the effectiveness of the operation of Part 1, um, which is in relation to the domestic abuse offence and the um, uh, aggravators associated with that, and that they would also be consulted by the Department on the review or revision of guidance um, that, that is issued in relation to um, that element of the bill. Um, that the report is to make recommendations um, as they consider appropriate in relation to the, the operation of the Act. Um, we're suggesting that they uh, are covering that the, the report would be completed annually and that the first report would be completed um, within two years um, of the new offence coming into operation. And I suppose the, the thinking in, in relation to that aspect is um, 
to give sufficient time for the necessary numbers um, to be coming forward on, and I suppose have a, an, a, an effective base um, on which to report against in relation to that. Um, provision that report is sent to the Department that it is laid at the Assembly and that is also um, published. Um, the person appointed is obviously to be independent as provided for in subsection 5. Um, that the appointment under this um, is to be made within a year of the uh, legislation coming into the legislation getting royal assent, so that that person is appointed um, by the, ahead of the, um, the domestic abuse, abuse offence coming into operation. Subsection seven is making provision um, that the uh, section would cease to have effect um, at such times which can't be um, any sooner than uh, seven years before the day in which the, the offence is coming into operation and that that can be provided for in terms of regulations and, and that provision is intended to reflect what was in the uh, committee amendment uh, or sorry the, the provision that, that's currently in the bill and then that the, the regulations would be subject to, to negative resolution and, and the thinking behind that was given that the broad thrust um, of or, or scope of that provision is, is set out in the primary was the the thinking behind the, um, the resolution procedure in relation to that. Also, there hadn't been anything stipulated in, in, in the clause. Um, and the clause 38 is tied in with this, that basically the section in relation to the independent oversight will come into operation on the day after royal assent. And again, that's really to enable um, provision to be made in relation to that appointment and for that to happen ahead of the more general provisions in, in part one coming into effect. Just clarify a couple of points. In terms of the current bill, the appointment not later than one year after commencement of the Act, to which then we had put would contribute to the development of the guidance under Section 25. I suppose my, my question on that, and now it's, it's been passed, um, but obviously there's guidance already being developed, and there is no independent person. You know, contributing to that, yeah. um, and when the offence becomes effective, you may you may not have had an independent person appointed because you've got up to a year to do that. Mm -hmm. So, and I suppose the, the the reason why we hadn't reflected that was we were very conscious of the fact that that guidance is being looked at at the moment and is due to be finalised um, early in the new year. So, it, our thinking was the guidance will be. Kind of that initial iteration of the guidance on what is going to be used by the organisations in, in terms of rolling out their training, etc., will already have been developed and, and will be in place as such. Um, so that's why we, we changed that provision to looking at it in the context of um, review and revision. So what we were trying to do was still incorporate a rule for them in relation to the guidance, but trying to take into account the fact that they, in all likelihood, w you know, won't be appointed on until the. Um, uh, offences coming into operation and the fact that the guidance is currently being looked at and, and will be finalised relatively shortly. So I suppose there, there, wasn't any, um, there wasn't any adverse intent behind that, rather we were just trying to kind of reflect that sequencing. No, I, um, think, I think it's a fair point and it's one I hadn't considered at the time, you know, but I have some sympathy that I don't want to be responsible for delaying this because you need to have an independent person appointed yeah. to then contribute to it. If it is already ready to go, yeah. Um, so it's certainly what we would want to do and, and would expect to see as part of kind of their first 
um, piece of work would be looking at that guidance in the context of is this operating the way that we need it to do? Yes. What changes are needed? Can it be made more effective? You know, all of that, that sort of stuff you would want them to be looking at as, as part of their, their initial piece of work on, on their initial report. So I have some sympathy on that first point, and obviously members will chat about that in due course too, but I suppose the change in your amendment of 1B to be consulted by the department, to me, that does weaken the current bill, where we are making it clear to the independent oversight that they have to review, report and make recommendations. Now, whilst I would still expect the department to be making, you know, reviewing and revising guidance, I I ex will expect the independent, or at least my view is that the committee's intention was that the independent person would do that, independent of the department, not okay. be not to be a consultee of it. Okay. Um, so, so it's probably just strengthening the wording in 31B, and, and trying to reflect more effectively reflect what was in the the original. Okay. Uh, yeah, like my, my preference there is that 31B is is still the B in the original. Independent oversight. But yes, I, I see what you mean in, in terms of the way in which that could be interpreted. Um, and yeah, we're more than happy to look at that. So we are. Um, okay, members. Anyone else wants some clarity on this one? Okay. Okay. The next one then. Um, the next one is in relation to a report on the operation of the part, so that is in relation to the domestic abuse offence and the um, aggravators, so provision that the Department prepares a report covering the reporting period in relation to um, the domestic abuse offence and any other offences where they are aggravated for the domestic abuse offence by the child aggravator or by the um, general domestic abuse um, provision. Um, then looking at it in the context of the information that would that would be set out or um, provided in relation to this. So um, the domestic abuse offence as uh, recorded with reference to, to police district information in terms of files to PPS, um, information in relation to cases prosecuted by PPS and um, <coughs> convictions in that are, are taken forward as a as a result of those prosecutions and looking at that in the context of um, uh, where the aggravator has been uh, proved in relation to that. Uh, the next element is looking at information in relation to the average length of time from cases being recorded to them being disposed of at, at court, whether or not that is by result of a conviction or, or, or could be um, uh, other uh, disposal provisions, um, not taking account of um, appeal processes in relation to that time frame. Uh, the report is also to include information in relation to training under Section 30. Um, how court business is arranged in terms of the disposal of cases, the experience um, at court of witnesses, um, and the intention is that those provisions would apply to the categories of offences generally, as, as opposed to um, distinct by the, the, the various types. Um, uh, just in, in terms of the ability to, to obtain information in relation to that. Um, subsection four is then looking um, at a range of matters in relation to. The department giving views in, in terms of the operation of the um, the uh, part one, which is dealing with the offence and the aggravators, and then looking at things around uh, guidance, awareness raising, um, and activities that may be undertaken in, in terms of supporting the, the operation of the act, and, and then a, a general any other matters that may be considered appropriate in relation to that. Uh, reference to the report being led and published. 
And then in terms of the reporting period, it's looking at the first reporting uh, period being between two to three years after the offence coming into operation. And as we indicated previously, that's really to try and kind of take account of an ability to determine which is, is the most appropriate end date, whether it's um, end of a financial year or end of a, a calendar year. So just to give a, a bit of flexibility in that regard. And then the, the reporting periods after that would be um, two further three-year cycles. Um, and the thinking in relation to that is that by the time you would come to the end of that third one, um, the offence would already have been in place for, for over 10 years. Um, and, I, and I suppose it's, it's the um, precedent that it, that it would set for, for that to be going on beyond that. I suppose what I would emphasise is that um, this is being looked at in the context of the, the global report as such. Um, it certainly would be the intention, or, or, or what would be done, is, is as done at, at the moment in, in terms of publication of statistics. So, th the data as such would continue to be published. It's, it's really the, the other bits and pieces um, you know, that are. It's kind of that, that broader report. We're certainly not saying that the department wouldn't be publishing information in relation to the, the offences more generally. And as I say, that would almost become kind of part and parcel of. Um, broader reporting arrangements that are already in place in relation to a, a range of other offences in terms of police reporting on information and, and the department also um, reporting on that as well. How, how could we get that included then? You know, because I get the point if you know, a report in the broad sense um, around the effectiveness of the bill and a, a broad report around training, but how could we get published on the annual basis, the data of the, the hard numbers. So you know, what we had in the training section was identifying the relevant staff in those organisations and then an annual reporting as to the uptake of training. So that's quite specific. Maybe doesn't need to be that specific. It's the type of assembly member's question I could see the department getting asked regularly. Yeah. Um, so that kind of information should be there. But can we incorporate then in this amendment somewhere that says that that kind of data will be published on an annual basis in terms of it's perhaps a case of making reference to um, subsection two, so there would be a, a continuation in relation to that, but not for the broader aspects of the report. Because I suppose subsection two is really in, in terms of at a, at a, a very broad level, it relates to your numbers as such. Yeah. So, could that be incorporated in then within subsection two that aspect of training um, that we had originally? I suppose in terms, so that's kind of the notion of the the annual reporting on the yeah. training. It may be better, but if the preference is that that continues, that it's that annual re reporting, that that's perhaps reflected back in the um, the, the training provision. But but equally, we always. No, we, we, I suppose we, we can look and see if there's something that we can do about that annual reporting within this provision. Okay, I'll bring in members. Linda, Rachel. The difficulty with it sitting in this is that this will be every three years and then we're asking for annual. Is that, is that sort of where you're... Yeah, it probably, in, in that circumstance, would be better then put back into the... No, that's, that's fine. We can, you know, if, if that's a preference for the committee, we can, we can look at that. So essentially, effectively trying to, you know, reinstate what, well, not reinstate, but to incorporate the bit that's in the bill at the moment um, into that provision in relation to the annual reporting mm -hmm. or the, the training element. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. I note the 
standout one there is um, we were silent on when you would stop reporting, and, and the department isn't. It's the final reporting period would be after the, the third of the three-year cycles. What's the basis for that? As, as I say, the, the thinking behind that was really the fact that for um, a lot of this, it is about how the offence is operating. Um, there's obviously, as I say, in, in the earlier part of the, um, the clause, there is a provision around the, the UMERCs, um, you know, the, the thinking in relation to kind of that three-year reporting um, is around the fact that by the time you'll come to the end of the third of the three-year cycles, as I say, the offence will have been in place for, um, you know, 10 years, at, or slightly over 10 years, I, I think was my calculation. Um, you know, it, it will be very well bedded in by that stage, and, and I suppose the the merits of um, continuing that broader apparatus, as I say, it, it would, um, you know, as is now, um, police and the department will continue to, to publish information in relation to offences and um, uh, time for, for cases going through, that, that type of thing. So that was really the thinking around the, um, the, the three three-year periods. Okay. I have a couple of other points, but I'll, I'll bring Rachel in at this stage. Thank you. So just with regard to the sort of the nine, ten years of three reporting, um, I think certainly for me the committee amendment was silent on a reporting period for the specific reason that it was silent on a reporting period um, ending, because it was to be continuous and ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of abetting an offence after nine, ten years, is that for me does not give a database or a baseline of appropriate data to work off to see if an offence is actually working or not. Um, or if we need to change anything, um, and in terms of in, it being incorporated into police and department statistics, um, surely that can happen with it being on the face of the bill anyway, is that you meet the criteria then? Um, is one the, option perhaps to have subsection 2 continuing beyond, you know, so that bit around kind of the, the numbers, for want of a better phrase, would, would that deal with, is, is, is that what the concern is? Um, no, I would rather it the whole thing um, with regard to court business, disposable cases, um, anything else that the department consider appropriate as well, um, public awareness, activities, everything. This is a brand new offence. This is criminalising course of control. No, no, one, absolutely. So it, I don't think nine years is an appropriate length of time, time to assume that it's bedded in and then only report on the numbers. We need, we need r massively robust reporting. Um, and the numbers should be publicised anyway, but we're putting it on the face of the bill to make sure that it is. But I don't think two covers everything, um, and certainly not within nine or ten years. Um, so, as our thinking was, there's, there's, you know, that when you get to the point of ten years, there's something seriously wrong if information, that broader information, is, is still being needed. I, I, I suppose we don't envisage a situation where it would be necessary to have all of that additional information. So that was kind of, as I say, that was, that was the thinking around the, the three three-year periods. Chair, yeah, I suppose I would say it in, a, in, the, in the other way, is that having all that information will actually better inform long-term strategies on addressing domestic abuse or sexual violence or anything like that. that the, more, the more data that we have long-term, um, better informed that we are in terms of outcomes and how we then put 
policies and resources in place. Because mm -hmm. if we're saying that there's a problem, or not, if, there, if there are different, uh, how, if, if there's different information coming through about how court business is arranged in eight years' time in certain police districts or you know areas, then we can adapt strategies to suit that based on the information. Um, that might happen. That's happening. That might happen now. It might happen in five years, but it might happen in 15, 20 years when we have different people in place. Um, so data is is key. Statistics are key. We know this. Resourcing is also key. But we had that. We had that out on the, the floor. But I don't think nine years is enough. Well, I suppose we're, we're not suggesting in any shape or form that there wouldn't be the information available in, in terms of the numbers. Um, you know, it is really around those things, um, you know, such as the awareness raising, experience of um, victims and witnesses, other activities. Um, just to say that was really what was what was informing our, our thinking um, in relation to that. Um, you know, obviously information still being available in in terms of number of offences, number of convictions, aggravations, length of time for for cases to go through court, etc. You know, that that is fundamental for. For any the operation of any offence generally, and as I say, it, it really was in, in the context of thinking that at a ten-year point, um, you know that that the system would be in, in, a, in a place that, that that would no longer be needed to that extent. I suppose I'm wondering what's the harm, you know, and and if there was a case to be made nine years from now, as there has been in the human trafficking bill or legislation. And the department asked for that to be repealed, and we've agreed, you know, so that there isn't the annual aspect of what was included mm -hmm. in that. There was a cogent argument brought forward. Yeah. And I suppose to me, I'm just asking myself, is this really a fundamental issue that we need to be worried about at this stage? Because a strong case could be made at a future point. What you could do in that case, if if the committee, you know, if that is the committee preference, is that in in terms of subsection six. You would have reference to the first reporting period. You would probably then remove B and C and make reference to. Um, I, I don't know what way it would be worded, but it would it would essentially just be saying that each subsequent reporting period is three years from the previous period. Yeah. Um, you know, so so certainly you know we we can look at that being revised if that's the committee position in relation to that. Linda. Just covered it. I think that if, if we can leave it a wee bit open-ended, because I agree with the chair, I think that there could be very strong arguments made in, in relation to, to, to both both arguments in relation to this. But I also agree with Rachel that there, everything we do is fed by information or should be. But in an awful lot of cases, it's done in the absence of information because we haven't done the right work to collect it and we know that now so we should learn from that and try to try to do things better in the future instead of let's do this and hope we have enough data to know if it's going to work it could lead to a lot less pilot projects let's put it that way that never get rolled out so in long term there could, there could be savings i know that there that this probably on the face of it looks like it could be very um, labour intensive, and that's not what the committee is wanting to do. We want to do what is going to actually get the, the best out of this and, and benefit society as a whole, most. So, and as the chair says, it's something that could be revisited. I, I think in if you course. can find that halfway, so you've, you've no, we'll, for me. What we'll do is, is essentially that B and C would be removed, and it will leave the the subsequent reporting periods to be ongoing reporting periods. Um, 
that, that, that's not a problem. Sinead Bradley and then Paul Frey. Thank you, thank you, Chair. Uh, Chair, just um, following on from what um, other members have said, you know, we're trying to, I suppose, looking at that section of it in terms of the reporting period, we're trying to project and anticipate, um, you know, the the demand at that time that might be there, and for very good reason, we have in this bill introduced the notion of this independent person who should be around to make a better judgment on that determination. Um, and I wonder, should there perhaps be scope in this part to allow for that person to make a recommendation at a later stage so that there should be sufficient scope in the face of the bill or space on the face of the bill for them to go in and look at the value of what's happening, how it might need to be changed or amended or extended, um, and I just wonder—is that a, a notion worth toying with when we're trying to find that halfway house, so to speak? The other thing I wanted to raise, Veronica, I just noticed, and it may just be um, a technical issue, but it's brought to my attention. In terms of the raising public awareness, has been used um, to replicate the committee amendment, which spoke of strategies. Is, is there anything in that nuance? Am I missing anything, or could you just maybe elaborate on that? Thank you. I suppose that, that element is. Sorry, I'll, I'll I suppose address your your first point. Um, in terms of the the independent person, I think that's certainly something that they could be looking at on on possibly commenting on in in terms of that um, longer term aspect. I don't know if it's something that necessarily needs to be. Um, stipulated in terms of the legislation, but I think it's a very helpful suggestion in, in terms of something that, that they may want to um, consider in, in due course and, and advise the department on in, in terms of any decision being taken in relation to that. And yes, in, in terms of the um, the 4B2, um, we felt it was more appropriate to reference that in, in terms of public awareness raising and the steps that are going to be taken in terms of ensuring that people are aware of um, and have information in, in relation to the, the, the new offence. So we, we've used the term public awareness rather than uh, strategies in, in that subsection. Could you, could you explain to me why, Veronica? You know, what, what do you make? What is the distinct difference to you in strategies as opposed to public awareness? How do you see them differing? I suppose as a department, when we would refer to strategies, we would view those almost in terms of, say, for argument's sake, the domestic and sexual violence and abuse strategy. Um, you know, in, in, in the context of this and, and what we thought the, the, the committee was, was trying to get at in relation to this, in, in terms of ensuring that people um, know about and, and have information in relation to this, um, I suppose we didn't see this as a a strategy piece of work, rather it was about ensuring that people knew about the offence and, and were aware about it, uh, aware of it. Um, you know, so, so through the likes of our um, awareness raising campaign, something akin to the See the Signs campaign, um, that was the, the type of thing that we were thinking of in, in terms of the scope of that, that element of the subsection. Okay, I appreciate that explanation. I'll, I'll mull over that one. Thank you, Veronica. Okay. Paul Freak. Yes, thank you, Chair. Uh, uh, as apart from putting in this stipulation of two years, three years, three years end, would it be comfort for the department, and again I'm teasing this out, I'm not saying this is a committee position by any means, but 
Would it be would it be, have any comfort to put in some sort of positive resolution, um, Lim, so that you can come to the assembly and seek the ending of reporting? Uh, now, having said that, if you tease this out and play this out and everything that Rachel and Linda has said and Shanita has said, imagine after the period of two years, three years, three years, so let's say ten years' time, heaven forbid there's some sort of infectious disease that creeps around the world and creates a scenario where everybody has to stay indoors, uh, which changes police priorities and standard operating procedures and skews the figures of domestic violence right through the roof. Surely, the government would need to know that quite quickly and would need to know that in order to change practices, to protect people, to change training, everything. Um, so this was a sort of safeguard to see how things play out, not only in the interim, in the initial period of the offence, but to actually catch vital data which could end up saving people's lives. So, so even though I'm, I'm raising the, the hair with regards to a positive resolution in the floor of the Assembly, the Assembly at some point could do this, and then in three months' time, sh a shock hit the world that would change dynamics completely. Um, and to have that reporting mechanism, a universal continuum, could actually be quite useful. I hope I'm not been too far-fetched there, Chair, with my infectious disease scenario. I think you're generous, and it could be 18 years away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we can chat about... I, I, I like the idea of it being silent, um, and ultimately, the average minister nine years from hence can make a case and repeal it in legislation. Um, that's my own view that I think we could probably address it through that. Is there any other points then on that amendment? Um, Would there be merit in having provision in there in terms of the three-year reporting that that could be altered by affirmative resolution? So that if there were to be a change, so not removing it as such, but making, I suppose, having provision on the face of the legislation that would enable that to be changed by um, regulations as opposed to necessarily having to take it forward through primary legislation? Yes, in terms of repealing it, if you ever needed to repeal yeah. it, um, it, it would do no harm to future-proof it for that. Yeah, essentially, we'll, we'll revert back to the reporting is ongoing, yes. but that there is provision that would enable at such point that, you know, and obviously it's something that would be discussed with the, the committee in any event, but that if there were to be a, a change in relation to that, that that could be taken forward by affirmative um, regulations rather than necessarily needing to do it by primary. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so in that, in that one, there's that aspect. There's the, the capturing the data on training on an annual basis yeah. to try and incorporate. Um, and I think the thinking is there is probably bringing that back into the, the training amendment as opposed to having it in the reporting one. Yeah, well, I've relaxed it wherever it falls, I suppose. Okay. Any other amendments? Veronica, uh, is that you? No, I think that, that's it on the ones for, for my side. Is there anything else, I suppose, just more generally, that the 
committee wants to, to flag with us. I suppose, as I say, what, we're, what we'd be keen to avoid is a situation where we're having departmental amendments and committee amendments and being put forward. I suppose I'm, we're conscious want us to win again. <laughs> <laughs> conscious, just that given that it's further consideration stage, there isn't the ability. You know, whatever goes Absolutely. in at this point is it kind of thing. And if there's anything that has adverse, unintended consequences, I suppose, we're all we're winners with robust challenge function. But we are. It's not something that's exclusive to anyone. And ultimately, we're trying to get the right legislation, so yes. Um, okay, well, I think on those broader amendments, we, we need a quick recap just so that we as members know what we're, we're going to be asking. I think you've probably captured most of it, Veronica, from the conversations, but we just need to go through them and get a definitive piece of advice to you. The civil legal aid is the next one, which I think is where we're going to is it Stephen and yeah. So if broadcasting can bring in the uh, the officials from the castle. You have them too? Uh, yes. So you're you're yeah, in Mr. Mr Martin's gonna make some opening remarks I believe. Or, with your leave, hopes to Okay. Okay, Chair, can you, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Okay. Chair, so if I can make um, maybe a few just short opening remarks then. Um, so thanks for the opportunity to, to be here to talk about the legal aid aspects of the amended bill. Um, I know we all want to find arrangements for legal aid which are clear, workable, affordable and achieve the Assembly's intention of helping protect victims of domestic abuse from further traumatisation by their abuser in the family courts. Legal aid is a difficult and very technical policy area. Translating policy intent into clear, workable legislation is challenging and takes time to get right. Any imprecision in how legislation or guidance is framed is often tested in the courts. With the view to extending the scope or cost of legal aid, my team and colleagues in the Legal Services Agency expend considerable time and energy defending the legal aid policy framework in legal proceedings. The outcome of these proceedings often hang on the meaning of individual words or phrases. So as a consequence, we spend a lot of time when drafting new legal aid legislation or guidance on being as clear and precise as we can. We also extensively test out draft legislation in advance by trying to anticipate potential challenges or any un unintended consequences. This essential preparatory work is designed to avoid, as far as possible, expensive judicial review challenges, as well as those unintended consequences. Ideally, we would have time to develop detailed proposals and legislation to give effect to the Assembly's wishes in a clear, targeted and affordable way. That is why we proposed the amendment last week and it remains, in our view, the best way to deliver an effective and workable solution for victims. However, we acknowledge that the committee is not convinced by the merits of that amendment. We understand your sense of urgency and desire to act more immediately to provide legal aid for victims of domestic abuse in defending themselves against proceedings brought by their abusers in the family courts. We also understand that members of the committee have recently expressed concern both over the cost of legal aid and about how some, some legally aided parties seem to draw out family proceedings with the express wish of draining the resources of former partners. Given this, we believe that, that the Department and the Committee have a shared ambition to ensure that the desired expansion of legal aid to assist victims of domestic abuse in the family courts is properly targeted, affordable and avoids as far as possible unintended consequences. 
Unfortunately, as the bill stands, that is not the case, and our briefing note sets out some of the key issues. We're happy to take questions on that note and explore with the committee whether there are ways of delivering the Assembly's intention to support victims of domestic abuse, targeting the, the additional legal aid spend as effectively as possible while minimising potential unintended consequences or harm. One potential mechanism might be to clarify and refine the existing clause through an amendment at further consideration stage so that the waiver focuses on enabling victims of domestic abuse to be represented in the defence of proceedings brought against them by their abuser in the Family Proceedings Court, where the great majority of such proceedings are initiated and heard. This would still leave the significant challenge, though, of how the Legal Services Agency would be able to identify victims of abuse accurately and speedily. Without this, there is a real risk of abusers being able to access legal aid to continue perpetuating abuse through the Family Courts. The most clear-cut approach would be to rely on there being a conviction in place. However, we recognise that this would leave out people in similarly difficult circumstances where, for a variety of reasons, a criminal case has not yet been heard or a conviction not secured. Reaching a workable mechanism by which the Legal Services Agency can identify a victim accurately and speedily will take more detailed work and consultation with stakeholders. This will take some time and could be addressed through regulations. The department already has powers to bring forward such regulations. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I'll bring Rachel in here just shortly. I suppose in a, in a broad sense, um, in respect of the committee amendment and I, I, or the department's further amendment, and I, I take the point that that's still your preferred um, travel of direction. I, I suppose all I would say to that is that the Assembly has now voted uh, on an amendment and my, my reading of the Department's amendment was to produce a report with no clear objective. Now the Assembly has now passed that, so obviously the issue of scope is a matter for the Speaker. Personally, I would be surprised if the Department's amendment was allowed because it undoes, or it would, it would undo what, what I regarded as a clear a decision taken by the Assembly to do something um, with immediate effect and in tandem with this bill rather than waiting for two years to come up with something. So I just make that as a, a general observation um, and that, that's where I want to be helpful to give effect to this in as clear and a concise way that everyone understands for all of the reasons you've outlined um, in terms of the kind of broader piece of work that needs to be done when it comes to the legal aid issue. Um, so, Rachel, I'm happy to bring you in if you want to, to ask questions. I'm primarily. happy for other members to go with Anaheim immediately. Okay. Linda? My question has already been submitted to the Department. I, I really need to understand clearly what the Department believes this amendment does that would be harmful, I, and I accept all of what you're saying around that, that everybody won't be encapsulated in this and it's a concern that, that we raised and I mean even the proposer of the amendment felt herself that she would much prefer it would go further but the reality is we were I suppose inhibited from going any further because we had to stay within the scope or what we thought would be the scope of the, the bill. So that, that's really why it is as, as limited as it is. I accept it that 
there were some concerns, but I didn't have a clear understanding of what those concerns were. I need to really bottom that out. What are the, are the big concerns for the department around this amendment actually standing? Because Chair has already outlined that the department's amendment actually negates this amendment, really, and, and I think he's probably right that the Speaker might have difficulty in finding it within scope. I would prefer to do what you're talking about. I prefer to, to look at it in the round, to say that on the floor of the, the House. I think that we all prefer that, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing, to stop the Department from doing what is outlined in their amendment around doing the report in addition to what has been agreed in the Assembly. Um, so, so it's, it's, I suppose the, the, the simple thing that I want from yourself is give me the big concerns and what are they rooted in? You know, where, where's, where, where's the evidence to back them up that, that, that they are. Yeah, they're, they're, they're rooted really in, in experience, and, and my colleagues will certainly come in, but they're, they're, they're very, very broad as they're drafted, and, and legal aid legislation works well and is targeted where it's, it's, it's clear, specific, and focused. So essentially, there are too many unintended consequences could, could occur um, through the provision as it's currently drafted. Um, I mean, narrowing, narrowing that and focusing it um, through an amendment at further consideration stage is a, is a viable option. Um, and I suppose what we would be keen to understand is what is the committee keen to achieve? Because at the moment, it's too broad brush um, and there, there are too many potential unintended consequences and risks. So, I suppose if we could understand what the committee is trying to achieve, we could we could develop something that would, would do that. But that's so. What we think you're trying to achieve is to prevent the the victim from being dragged through the family courts by the abuser, and that um, abuse being continued through the family courts is what we understand that you seem to be wanting. But that's not what this provision does. Um, firstly. Um, secondly, it leaves it very unclear as to who a victim is, and it would be that it would fall to the legal services agency to try and determine, and they don't have the wherewithal to, to do that. Um, that would be the subject of significant judicial uh, challenge in the courts, um, and, uh, and there is potential for the abuser to portray themselves as, as, a, as a victim to perpetuate the very thing that you don't want to happen, which is Taking the victim through the through the, the family proceeding through the through the family courts, um, and I suppose we're not quite sure that the waiver is the right way of achieving what you want to achieve. Those are the three main things, and I don't know, Paul, if you want to to, to add to that. Yeah. Stephen, uh, good afternoon uh, to the committee. Maybe if I could just make a couple of very simple observations, fundamental to the effective outworking of the amendment is to identify who is a victim and therefore entitled to exercise the waiver in their behalf. As Stephen said in his opening remarks, while I think we could all happily say if someone was convicted of an offence, that proves it, but we know in practice that that is not uh, an accessible way to do uh, business for the vast majority of these types of cases. 
many of the cases that we are dealing with where there is genuine urgency and bringing the matter before the court, we would deal with those applications on a same-day, next-day basis, particularly in the lower courts. So fundamentally, we have to have a mechanism which gives the clarity to enable us to give that direction to an applicant that they are covered under legal representative that's free to appear on their behalf without further expense. I am genuinely concerned that we don't want to get into a situation where we've got two applications before us in respect of the same case, where actually both parties are asserting that they're victims. I don't think that is something which the amendment actually envisages, but it is the potential that we actually face. The final point I would like to make just at this juncture is the amendment is understandably drawn very widely. Just anxious about what that means because the Article 8 reference, which is part of the two-fold trigger that the amendment entails, that Article 8 reference can be associated with many types of proceedings which can be defended or can be brought at all levels of court. And that brings a range of cost implications and it also brings a range of different financial challenges. One of the issues at a higher court level is that there are a variety of ways that could allow an individual's means to be assessed slightly differently because the amendment is drafted against the background of the domestic violence waiver, which of course only applies for the lower courts and that addresses the financial eligibility threshold there. So if I summarise this way, I would suggest that there is an issue of how we identify the victim and identify that with clarity, certainty and speed. How we identify the scope of cases that are envisaged and there would be a cost aspect that would fall alongside that, both in terms of bringing new applications, which legally it would not previously have had to fund, and also dealing with applications which we may currently fund, but we would fund with considerable contributions from assisted parties. So there is a practical side in terms of the victim, there is a timeliness side in terms of the evidence, and then there is a cost side in terms of the impact of the range of the amendment as currently stands. Sort of clarify where I'm at, and I'm only speaking for myself here, to be fair, I'm not speaking on behalf of all the committee, but other committee members will come in so you'll maybe get a kind of an understanding where there's a common thread. But the first thing is, I think that the understanding of what the intent of this is, is a wee bit skewed, because it's not about stopping an abuser from repeatedly taking their partner back to court on contact orders. It's about the fact that they may well do that. We're hopeful that as a consequence of maybe the victim getting financial aid or getting legal aid, that that might be a consequence of it. They may well not see it as beneficial to them, because their intention is to bleed their partner dry of any finances that they have. It's further abuse. It's financial abuse and psychological abuse. So it's really about those who we would call the working poor, who aren't entitled to legal aid because they aren't on benefits, but they're probably just very slightly, just very slightly over the threshold. And so it doesn't take much to bleed them dry. It is about 
about addressing that, first and foremost for me. The issue around who a victim is, we, we actually had some conversation around that among ourselves and, and how you would establish that. And, and there's a number of ways, but one could be if, if a case has met the PPS threshold, evidential threshold, to, to go to court, then that you could identify that, that individual as a victim rather than wait until the person is actually convicted, because for numerous reasons they might not be convicted. And I think, I suppose, for, in terms of myself, those are the two main issues that, that I can address for you. I mean, Rachel, obviously, it's Rachel's amendment, and I'm, I think she'll go into quite a substantial amount more detail. I agree with you again that this doesn't cover all of the issues we'd love it to cover, and I would, I would prefer that we could do a lot more in relation to addressing these issues for, for people who are being further abused by being repeatedly taken back to court on contact orders. But unfortunately, within the scope of this bill, we are limited to what we can do. And I mean, Rachel is, is on record in this committee and, and on the floor of the Assembly that she is open to refinement, absolutely, and, and to putting some parameters in place around the amendment. But it was about getting it on the, on the books and then allowing the department to bring forward something that would improve it. But I'll let her speak for herself. I think she's more than capable of doing that. But the concern was around negating it. And, and I'm taking on board the, the concerns that you're raising, but what I'm trying to find is how do we address those concerns and still have something in place? Do you want us, Chair, to come back on that now, or do you want to? No, I'm, I'm content that there? I'm content that the other members will come in. And I mean, the chair, in the absence of the chair, I'm going to go to the next member. Sinead, you're you're first. Thank you, Deputy Chair. Yes, um, basically, um, just to go over the points, you you yeah. raised the issue of unintended consequences, and I would be interested to know if you can give me some examples of those, because I'm really trying to grasp the department's concerns. Um, I see the headlines, but I don't hear the detail on what that might actually look at. Um, just as a start, if I could start with that. Yeah, so if I, if I start and colleagues can come in, so one unintended uh, consequence is the types of proceedings which for which legal aid is possible. So you could find an acrimonious situation where the, um, the victim, perhaps, uh, in, a, in a case, well, for example, in a case unrelated to, uh, to her abuser, uh, could, could bring proceedings um, and that's not what I think the, the, the committee wants. It's, it's about protecting them from the person that has abused them. So that, that would be one unintended consequence. So it's, it's broader than I think that you, that you want. The other unintended consequence is, is around a key one is around this issue of the, the, the victim. So it's about the, the breadth of the types of proceedings and the breadth of proceedings and the issue around a victim. So an abuser could potentially claim that they're a victim. Um, but. Paul and, and John may wish to just add to that. I'd like to say, uh, um, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, Paul. Go ahead, John. Thank you very much. One of the things that struck me most when I saw the, the original form, the committee's amendment that was proposed and now the bill, is that there's two potential areas of vulnerability and they interact, interact in a dangerous way. So one of them is this question about how does the LSA identify who a real victim is? Um, and absent a test 
with the LSA trying to get into findings of fact about that, my, the, 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 the thought that struck me immediately was there will be people who represent themselves as victims in order to get access to this waiver. The most likely people to do that in, in these sorts of circumstances, it seems to me, are abusive partners who want access to the courts. And the other dangerous part of the provision is it doesn't just apply where someone's wanting to defend themselves against an application made by someone else. The waiver applies whether where a person is making an application to the court. So it can create a low bar for access to legal aid, one that can be readily, readily overcome by someone who wants to be disingenuous, and then it enables them to bring applications. And the, the, the red light that, that shone for me at that point was this is an invitation to an abusive partner to make use of this to perpetuate abuse rather than the, to, to, have the, to have abuse stopped. And that to me is the, the, the major unintended consequence that arises in terms of the current form of the amendment. Um, it's, it's, it can be genuinely counterproductive for victims. So it seems to be the two ways that you would need ways you would need to tidy the thing up to make sure it focuses on people that you actually are trying to help is to give the LSA some means of knowing when a person comes to them and says, I am a victim of domestic abuse, that they are in fact a victim and not either an abusive partner or someone seeking to game the system, frankly. And secondly, if the scope of the uh, waiver were limited to circumstances in which someone was defending themselves and against an application, that it couldn't be abused in any case to bring an application against someone. You would, it would at least be then going to someone in circumstances where the, the, the application is being made against them. So you see, in these sorts of ways, you, ref, you can focus on, on the people you're actually trying to help and try to keep out, keep out of the net, uh, with the net, people that might be trying to, to perpetuate abuse using, using the system. That was the thing that, that struck me most sharply. I think it was the biggest danger. So as I say, we, we, the, the department has power through regulation to impose a to, to provide for a test um, that would be able to identify victims. You know, convict and conviction is one way of doing that. A PPS threshold might be another. There may be other ways that we could we could find that would work quickly, clearly, and would get and would get the thing right. Um, but what we need to do is to take the time to explore what those might be. To what other forms of evidence would be available to a person who was a victim of abuse that they could present along with their application and pass the test, and it would be it would be safe, quick, and effective. Um, and then, as I say, if we, if if the if the intention is to prevent abuse of the system to bring people to court with whatever motivation, then if the waiver applied only in circumstances where you're defending an application, it then can't be used to bring one against someone else, and it would avoid that additional unintended consequence. So, okay, I appreciate that. And, and to be fair, it was one of the things that I think jumped out of a lot of members um, when it was initially there, but it was getting it on the face of the bill was the important piece that had to happen at that time. So, am I right in then thinking, whenever we look at the domestic abuse bill, at the beginning of that bill, we have an evidential test, okay? And it isn't a one-off incident. It has to happen more than one time, two or more. And there's an evidential basis there to establish whether there is um, a case to be brought through the domestic abuse bill. So there is a test to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then if a victim has um, gone through this case and didn't reach conviction, there are other supporting legislations um, which come into play, which may secure the conviction in that sense. But the evidential test either way has been satisfied for the case to be brought. 
So that would be one way of refining in terms of who the victim is. Then um, the the objective, and you know, I, I do take the point that this is about um, a victim being the court being used as a weapon, and you know, this perpetual bringing the victim to court. So, in that sense, the second person who has to be defined in terms of limiting in, um, you know, the breadth of this is who is the defendant. Can the defendant then bring um, the person who has triggered the victim, who has triggered the domestic abuse bill? Um, could that defendant be bringing that victim or alleged victim? Well, there will be a victim if they pass the evidential test, but on lots of other matters not relating to that particular case. So you're able to refine it between the relationship, which is uh, an element within the domestic abuse, you're talking about that domestic relationship. So you're able to define the defendant. So it's legally it triggers when it's anything to do with these two parties. And there might be, I don't know if any scope has been done on that. And then the other um, notion I had, yes, I, I do see that the, the parameters. So if a person has identified themselves as a victim uh, through the domestic abuse bill, then the, thir the, the reach out is that the objective is that that person can't bring them. So for example, yes, there would need to be parameters put in place that the victim isn't using their access to legal aid to take on all sorts of different cases, not even relating to the defendant. Um, you know, if they have an issue with consumer law or something that that, that right to legal aid is, is very well defined in its scope. Um, and its intention. And I just would like to have seen more from maybe the department in terms of encapsulating that notion and understanding that it is about that perpetual um, effort to just chip away and break down the victim through finance and psychological damage and weaponizing the courts. And you know, I was I was pleased that this got to the face of the bill because I think it, it does need to be refined, but I think there are easy grab ways of doing that. And it isn't the answer to legal aid, but it does offer an answer to legal aid in a domestic abuse setting. And that's why I think, you know, there is a shared objective here, you rightly pointed out. Um, but I don't know that the solutions are so hard to reach um, as to maybe that was presented on the floor at the time that we should avoid it with all with all costs. I would appreciate any thoughts you have on those suggestions. Yeah, yes, I mean, and, and, and I suppose the point is we're, we're not saying that any of these things are insurmountable, but they take time to work through. And a piece of legal aid legislation is not something that can be done, you know, on the back of an envelope, but really take careful thinking through. Um, and for example, I mean, one additional thing that perhaps we, that you don't want is you also don't want a victim to use the family courts to uh, for, for a vendetta against their abuser either. So it's it's about narrowing the circumstances and about being clear. But so, but some of that needs quite a lot of of work. So that's why we went for the we were proposing the amendment that we were proposing. So you know, I don't think the minister has any objection. In fact, she doesn't have any objection to the intention. But it's just making sure that we have something that's workable, affordable, and focused. 
Um, and that's where we're really trying to get to, uh, Paul, isn't it? I, I find your contribution very helpful, if I say so, because I, I think it crystallised in many ways my own concerns uh, from an administrative point of view. I, I want to be very clear how this is to work in practice, because I want to be clear that I'm only facilitating a victim who is defending a, a case that is being brought punitively against them and entirely inappropriately against them, and also to do that in a way which makes it clear that this isn't some set of circumstances which someone who has been established to be a victim, because of that, can take any proceedings as long as it refers to Article 8 in those proceedings as part of the waiver, even as the amendment currently is in the bill in perpetuity, because there's there's no current victim relationship. And I think those are the sorts of things, and I, I, I do agree with you, that the refinement to focus it on the circumstances that people want to address in terms of the committee's amendment can be delivered on, but we just need to take some focused scalpel to this and actually get the right hue to it. I think the worst case scenario is we end up in a situation where people are getting legal aid for in circumstances which we never intended and for proceedings which we never intended. And that's, I think, what we are trying to avoid by suggesting conversations to get to a resolution in this matter. I suppose, um, and then I'll bring in, I think, was it Rachel was, was going to be next? Um, I'm not voting for the department's amendment. You can table it, and I'll be voting against it. So the comments here about more time, more time, and comprehensive review, the Assembly has voted. So the sooner the department get engaged into making sure the parameters of this are clear, the better, because I'm not going for an amendment that says that you, you have two years to lay a report to make proposals. That is not giving effect to what the Assembly has now voted on. So. On all the other amendments, the Department has came up with a way to refine it. We'll agree those in due course over the next couple of hours. But on this legal aid, the Department does not come into this committee with a way forward that is helpful. And it wasn't my amendment. It was Rachel's amendment, but I supported it. And it'll, it'll, it'll stay unamended on this bill and become law. And the Department will then need to very quickly come up with another piece of primary legislation if it's so concerned about these risks. So I just make that broad commentary as to where we are in this process. I appreciate that will require very quick turnaround, but if there are clarifying amendments to be brought forward so that this is within the parameters that were outlined in the debate, let the Department quickly bring them forward. But pursuing this approach of kicking it down the road for two years, I don't believe will garner the support in the Assembly. So that's just a broad assessment here of where I think people are going to be at. So I think Rachel wants to, to bring in specific questions around this. I have a number of questions. Sorry, Chair, I just wondered if I could make a brief, a brief response to, to that point. I mean, we did consider um, bringing forward an amendment to you today, but we needed to understand, have this discussion to understand what your intention was, because it wasn't fully clear from the consideration stage debate. Um, this amendment came fairly late in, in the process, um, and so, we, so, and not not to, know, re not, been... to re not to repeat, Stephen, it wasn't a committee amendment. No. 
So I'm trying no, to I know be, that. I, I'm trying to be helpful, no, but I... but on that point, neither did the department come forward with its position until the actual debate. So the you know the, the minister got up in the chamber, and that was the first that I had heard the department's position being outlined because it wasn't outlined to this committee in advance of the debate. And I wasn't at all convinced in the minister's arguments that she put forward. And if she had spent more time engaging with the department than going around executive ministers trying to get an outcome, maybe it might have been a different result. I'll bring in Rachel at this stage, and we'll, we'll try and get to the specifics. Thank you, um, Chair, and I appreciate your time today. Um, and yep, just to, again to clarify, this was not a committee amendment, and this is now no longer my amendment. This is the clause in the bill. So it is now on the face of the bill. So, as, as, as I appreciate, it was myself that took it forward, and it certainly was not done on the back of an envelope. Um, just to to clarify, Article Eight does not talk about consumer law. Article 8 orders are as follows. Contact order, prohibited steps order, residence order, specific issue order. This has got nothing to do with consumer law at all. It does not widen the scope in any way into any other bits of law or any litigation. There's no medical litigation here. It is all to do with parental responsibility, the person whom a child lives or is to live with, arrangements to be made with, with the person whom a child is to live and giving directions for the purpose of determining a specific question which has arisen in connection with any aspect of parental responsibility of the child framed in contact orders. So it is not widening a scope into every single part of law where a case of domestic abuse has been alleged or, or any, any allegation made against A or B. I just want to I have loads of questions here, but I'm, 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 and these are for information because we would want to try and get to it. And I, I appreciate the committee doesn't have to get to an agreed position on this. I'm more than happy to table my own things. <laughs> Again, it was it was myself that, that did it, so I created the mess. I'll try and fix it. Um, but that just to put just to clarify that that Article Eight does not expand into um, into all aspects of law. So, and. In terms of the unintended consequences, and I appreciate that Linda and Sinead both had asked that, the unintended consequences that I heard were you outlined at the start three issues. There was unintended consequences, deferring of, or defining who is a victim, and then levels of court implications and finances. So are those the unintended consequences, or are there more? Well, I mean, they're, they're set out pretty clearly, I think, in our, in our, between our briefing note and our opening statement. Um, and, you know, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly fairly broad range of things. But yes, there are. The, we've already set out what we think the main un unintended consequences are. Okay. So there's not another list of unintended consequences that might arise. It is about definition of a victim, practicality for discretionary power, and then levels of court, um, or the, the, yeah, different level of high court, um, lower courts, and find the financial challenge. Just as a, uh, as I a summary. Sorry, Rachel, if, if I may, I'm just going to suggest that 
one of the issues in terms of Article 8 being associated with things, it's probably more likely to be associated with matters to do with divorce, depending on the age of the children, because there could be a relationship in terms of ongoing access and custody of the children in that circumstance, uh, and that could potentially arise a period of time after the abuse happened. I'm not saying the abuse may, uh, abusive relationship and pressures may not still be at large, but that's the only other point I would make to you, if that's of assistance. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so that's sort of the retrospective nature, I suppose, I, I, and I appreciate that, that, that so that's kind of squaring off the unintended consequences. But, but um, and, and again, to come on to A26, the proposals to civil legal aid, in, in no way did um, I see this as a helpful amendment from the department to what was, in terms of, it said very clearly, and Linda said as well, that it were welcoming refinement and clarity and, and detail, but um, kicking it down the, can, to the line for a couple of years to bring back a report is not something that um, was envisaged in, in the wording of this um, or what, what I think the Assembly um, had intended. But the Department's letter to the Committee on the 24th of November had stated um, about unintended consequences about how to qualify a client or how to assess their eligibility. So what kind of solutions do you see to avoid a scenario where legal services would have to try and determine whether or not abuse has occurred? If I, if I take that one perhaps in the first instance, uh, I think we need to have a, a mechanism which takes what someone reports and actually has a degree of verification around it. Um, I, I note that in the opening statement the issue of prosecution was raised but was recognised that that was not a definitive solution. I think the Deputy Chair made a helpful observation in terms of a file being passed to the PPS. Uh, and I think if there was an engagement, we could probably look at a range of scenarios which give focus to that, so that there would be a, a verification mechanism, which we wouldn't have to look behind because we could have absolute confidence in it. And if that was a verification mechanism, which delivered a very quick response, I think that's really what we need, so that the application can be uh, processed and as necessary, someone appear in court to defend the, uh, the victim. Okay, so in terms of um, possible solutions, I, I appreciate that you know you want a mechanism and you want a range that could could, ha could have a range of scenarios needed. But do you have any um, examples of what they could look like? The key thing is going well, to be sorry, Paul. Do you want to try? Go ahead. Thank you. Um, the key thing is going to be that the evidential test will essentially set out a list of circumstances in which the LSA will be able to be satisfied that the person is a victim. And so on that list will be there is a conviction for a domestic abuse offence. On that list may well be that the PPS is satisfied that a criminal uh, the standard of evidence has been met or that there has been a court that has made a finding of fact that domestic abuse has, for whatever, uh, for whatever person that purpose that's taken place, has occurred. It might also include, for example, certification by an independent person with knowledge of the facts of the case that that um, abuse has in fact taken place. Um, I think whatever that test is, it doesn't strike me that the sensible thing to do is to try to set it out in primary legislation. I think the thing that we'll need to do is 
go away and try to compile a definitive list of those circumstances. We can say for sure that conviction for a domestic abuse offence will be on that list and that there will be need to be further things on it. Um, but what we'll need to do is to talk to stakeholders in this area and understand what, best, what, what sorts of evidence will be available to a person in these circumstances that will enable a speedy decision to be made. But those are the sorts of things that will need to appear. No, thank you. appreciate that. And that's granted if there is an eligibility requirement then. Okay. So, again, the, the letter also states that there has to be a clear test available to the Director of Legal Aid casework that has the force of the law that can dis discriminate between real and false accusations of abuse and that is capable of being applied in practice. So what, kind, what would that test look like? I mean, um, the, the clarity required be provided, say, by another statutory body or a criminal justice agency? Indeed. So I, I, I wouldn't like to close down the range of sources from which that, which that certification might come. But the, 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 the troublesome matter is that the LSA is going to be in no position to make a finding of fact on its own. So it will be presented with an application from a person purporting to be a victim of abuse and will have no way of looking behind that application to determine whether or not that's true. What's important is that it will come with a declaration from some statutory or other body saying that the, that the allegations being made are, are well grounded and that the LSA can then proceed with confidence to make a quick decision to apply the waiver and in those circumstances the waiver would then, would then apply. The difficulty is we have that, we, that we have at the minute, that test just isn't, isn't there, isn't provided for. Okay. Um, the letter as well it states there may be other relevant protections which might more usefully focus on preventing access to the family courts by abusive partners where their aim is simply to perpetuate abuse which might include limiting access to legal aid or by limiting access to the courts themselves in circumstances where there have been repeated applications or where the applicant has been de repeatedly defeated or where the abuse of the process has been demonstrated much more good might be done to help victims of abuse See any problems with those suggestions? Well, I mean, all, all we're saying is that, for example, I mean, courts do have powers to do certain things. So, so if the what we were trying to, to do is understand where where the assembly was coming from, and basically what we're flagging, there are other ways to achieve the same ends, um, either in tandem or uh, instead of this. So that, that that was the point that we were trying to make. I think it would be fair to say that uh, while legal aid can play a part in dealing with this issue, uh, it's not the only uh, player that can deliver this. Uh, conscious that the amendment is dealing with legal aid, and that's the context in which we are uh, trying to respond to you. But we're just suggesting that, as well as looking at how this can be uh, implemented in practice, we also can look at other areas that might actually. Uh, provide a more useful blocker to stop the application being made in the first place. Yeah, and I, I agree as well. Um, so in terms of A26, with the department coming forward with a report, I absolutely welcome that, but not, not to the detriment of the legal aid um, issue. Um, and I can certainly foresee some of those um, problems that have been outlined in the department's letter as being forming part of that report without, without being prescriptive. Um, so I think that's something that could be looked at. Um, in 
more in terms of the letter as well. It says the creation of the opportunity for new legally funded applications in family law cases as the problem that gives rise to most of the additional cost risk and the risk of the waiver being exploited by abusers. So, in terms, could you explain why that's the central problem as opposed to a solution that would see eligibility clarified but still maintain the opportunity for victims to bring new, new legally funded cases if they needed to do so? John, do you want to take that one? Thank you. Um, I wouldn't say that that is the core problem. I'd say that the problem is the interaction between the two issues of not being able to identify victims accurately and the issue of being able to bring applications. The two of those interacting together give rise to the greatest danger. Um, there is still an issue with respect to applying a waiver to allow people to bring applications that are at, that, that because what it does is it increases traffic in the courts it, it gives rise to more applications coming forward um, and those applications coming forward will all because this waiver is applying be complicated to an extent by having allegations of domestic abuse involved in them which the courts will have to untangle now in some of those circumstances it would be actually it would be actively helpful to a victim to be able to bring some of those applications <coughs> but it, it will bring in it, to allow it will bring in scope of the waiver so many other circumstances that it, that, 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 that it'll have this effect of potentially having well, firstly, of having of having re-traumatisation going on through the courts. Secondly, of having additional large volumes of cases and costly cases. It's only by it's only by including the it's only by applying the waiver to allowing people to bring applications as opposed to simply defend them that we risk increasing the number of cases before the courts, and the risk is that you get a very large increase. Um, in cases especially where uh, which are all complicated in that way we do see an argument that would recognize that in certain circumstances it will be it, it would be helpful to have the protection for a victim to be able to bring those but i think to have it generally available without to some extent circumscribing the conditions in which it might occur um as the letter says, it's it's the issue that gives rise to the, to the the potential large increases in cost of the legal aid fund. Not all of which would be targeted in the way that we um, at helping the victims in question. Okay, but that only only with regards to Article Eight orders. Only with regards to Article Eight orders, yes. And, and those those court court applications would be coming anyway. Well, there's contact. Children being brought, so I, I I appreciate that there might be a, a you know you could foresee an increase of applications. Yes. At the end of the day, those applications are going to be made. Well, but yes, some many of those applications might already have been made. They'll not be funded in part through the legal aid system. Our expectation is that the availability of support might drive additional applications, which a person might have imbalanced, decided not to bring, uh, or might not have been in a position to bring, absent the waiver. Um, uh, sort of simple economics. The thing gets cheaper for a person to do, and the balance of whether they decide to do it or not then shifts. 
and then you get more applications in consequence. And those applications, because they're brought forward under the waiver, you have issues of domestic abuse involved in them. Um, none of this is to say um, that, uh, that, 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 that those applications are necessarily without merit. It's only to say that, um, that, that that's where the, the risk of enhanced cost in the system comes from. Yeah, and as, as I understand from an economic perspective, but I'm mm. coming here at this as a victim's perspective, yes. which is what this entire legislation is supposed to be about. So oh, I, whilst I appreciate it, 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 uh, those, it, it, the cases are coming anyway. They're to deal with child, child contact or prohibited steps or residents. They're to deal with parents in a very specific issue. And I understand that it, you know financial risk, and there would be repeat, there could be lots of more applications. But again, those applications are coming because there's a need. For it. We, we, we can't make any judgment on whether those cases have any merit. That's for the courts to decide. Um, and if it's, there's no merit, then they won't bring them. Well, um, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the reason that I think that we we're, we're keen to explore this issue about whether it's necessary to extend to the the waiver to circumstances where people want to bring an application is if the desire is for the most part to prevent people being dragged before the courts by a former abuser then that that isn't necessary in order to do it if if the intention is to give people the capacity to bring applications then what we're saying to you is that carries with it a risk that there'll be firstly there'll be considerable cost secondly that however good the test is about whether victims are genuine or not it, it, to some extent, c could enable the very form of abuse you're trying to stop. There are, there are concomitant consequences that come with it. Yeah. So, and what? I think we, the committee, I think, sorry, the committee members that have spoken so far have clarified that it is not our intention to try and stop people being taken to court. Oh no, can't, sorry, can't that's that. the per, this is per to level the playing field between two parties. Quite. So sorry. it's not, it's not, a, it, we're not talking. I don't. I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the committee, but I think that is where we're at. This is about levelling the playing field between two parties. Sorry. Um, so it's just by, by refocusing the waiver you mentioned earlier on about, um, and I'm not having you know to bring cases, but to defend an application brought. Um, does that include appeals? Maybe if I can come in on that uh, particular question. The, the normal principle is that if you are successful at the lower court, you get legal aid to support your application to the higher court. Uh, I think the point that you're driving at, Rachel, is that there's a different financial eligibility test between the lower court and, and the higher court. So effectively, that could be accommodated in, in one of two ways. Uh, one way would be to allow the appeal to be financially linked to the original uh, application and for uh, it to proceed on that basis uh, against uh, the new test. That new test could have a limitation of contributions as is currently suggested, or alternatively, we could look at powers I already have in certain circumstances to have uh, a waiver on the financial limits and the uh, contributions that would be payable. So there are two ways of dealing with that. Uh, and from a practical point of view, whatever mechanism is in place for the lower court, it has to be replicated in a practical way for the upper court, because otherwise it doesn't give a fact to the uh, defence that the, the victim is trying to pursue. 
Okay, thank you for that. And um, there's, there's lots in there, but I'll not unpack all of that. But in terms of an appeal within the court service, is that a defensive application or is that someone bringing? Okay, so uh, as regards so, to our, our A and B in the domestic abuse bill, mm -hmm. that obviously works in both of two ways. So if the abused party the abused party has brought an application for a contact order and has secured a contact order and their abuser then seeks to appeal that decision in the higher court they will be defending the application defending the appeal the abused party will be defending the appeal and therefore wouldn't be bringing an application to defend the appeal in circumstances where the abuser has secured a contact order in the lower court and the abused party wishes to bring an appeal against that decision, they would then be applying at the higher court. So uh, it doesn't it doesn't apply to that because then I can see a big a, a gap there where this won't with would if, if it was purely um amended down um as it currently stands to only applying in defence, then there would be a cohort of, of people that this financial waiver wouldn't apply to. This financial waiver wouldn't apply, but the fact is that because they'll be appealing a decision at the lower court, they'll be appealing to a higher court. They'll be going then to the to the family care centre or to the high court in, in in these cases. And in the in proceedings at the family care centre and the high court, Paul as uh, 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 at the LSA has discretion already to disapply the or sorry to disregard part or all of their income or capital when right. calculating their eligibility. Uh, on that, how much is that used? Uh, it, it, it's not used currently uh, because the financial eligibility test for the higher courts is actually more flexible than it is for the lower courts. So the financial threshold means that most people that uh, had funding at the lower courts will, will get it at the higher courts and some people who didn't have funding at the lower courts will also have it. The discretion is not used, or to the best of my knowledge, I have never used the discretion in that context because it has never been asked. I think what John was trying to emphasise is that if there was a package of measures put forward to deliver the desired uh, outcome, then that, that could form a different part, which actually could provide a greater comfort to the, the victim. Maybe the other point, Rachel, is worth mentioning is that it only goes to the higher court with legal aid if it's a meritorious appeal. Um, and assuming for the sake of today's discussion that there is merit in the appeal which the abused person wants to bring to the higher court, then that brings the net issue back to how they are not penalised uh, by going on appeal to the higher court. Because if we say there's merit in it, then I don't think they should be penalised in terms of how this works out in practice. Okay. Um, so just judging from the letter, there, um, this, this, this solution, because we have, there's no wording of RA26 that's come from the department. So in terms of trying to get detail and clarification, the, the, the ask is to have the defence put in to, to the, the current clause as it is on the face of the bill, but has there been any considerations given to any other possible solutions? 
Yes, I mean, the, we sort of sort of hinted at, at, at one of my opening um, my opening remarks. So I mean, there's potential then for um, basically the, the the waiver to be focused on defensive proceedings uh, brought uh, by the victim again. Uh, uh, against the victim by their abuser in the family proceedings court where most of these cases are, are, are dealt with um, and then the department bringing forward regulations on what a victim or guidance on, on what, a, what a victim is and that as John has indicated probably needs a bit more uh, that would need a bit of focused work I mean we, we, we couldn't put that kind of information in primary legislation because it would need detailed discussion and uh, engagement with stakeholders but that's the kind of thing that's the kind of shape of an amendment that could come forward Okay. Um, the, and I suppose you, you covered that in terms of regulations and, and, and having to define or prove, not even define, it's proving victim. Um, but presumably you'd still have to prove the abuser then as well underneath that. And does that not make things more complicated? Well, not necessarily, because the kind of test that John outlined earlier, uh, in terms of uh, what you know, who a victim is, if there's been a conviction, a case gone to PPS, I think as Sinead Bradley suggested, um, you know, if if the uh, if there's been a finding of fact by a court, for example, in granting a non-molestation order, you know, th those are cases in which there's a victim and, a, and an abuser. So, you know, there has been a finding of fact. Uh, so, if if the the definition of a victim or the for the purposes of, of LSA's decision making is is in that kind of territory that that that's that, that that's really where we you know that those are the kinds of things that we would need to, to, to look at. Okay. Chair, I think I'm gonna leave it there and then maybe come back. Okay. Paul Free. Yeah well, listen I'm not gonna get into any of the detail. That's uh, Rachel's there's no doubt about it, it's her amendment and now it's in the face of the bill, so we will have to find a solution. Uh, and again, I, I can tell you now, A26 is not the solution, it's just a report. Now, if you're telling us that A26 was an amendment to add to the bill, yep, I'm there with you, but it's not to replace Clause 27, absolutely not. Uh, so I am interested in your report uh, to be published within two years. I would be very interested to find out exactly what it does and how much scope it covers with regards to trying to protect as many domestic abuse victims as possible. And again, it's not to stop court cases, it's just to ensure there's the playing, levelling up of the playing field. Uh, because access to justice is a very important issue, as you all know. Um, and I know you guys are talking in an economic perspective because you always probably hear from this committee about an economic issue, an e economic problem, and I get that. But in the domestic violence setting, it's not. And, and to be honest with you, if it is an economic perspective and an e economic problem, I can tell you scenario after scenario where I have been, I, I have been contacted by constituents who tell me, how did he get legal aid? How did she get legal aid? What's going on there? So, so... Here we are in a strange, unique position where we're trying to level up the playing field for more people to get legal aid. Um, but I do think that the, the victim, the definition of a victim has to be settled. 
and, and how the, you come about getting that def definition or, or proof, maybe, and then also the definition of a perpetrator. I, I don't want this to be a, 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 a free pass in forever for a victim of domestic violence to go to court at any, at any juncture on any subject. So there, it's, it has to be clearly defined on the, on the issue of round victim and perpetrator uh, with regards to Article 8 scenarios. Uh, but I'm also thinking that there may be a, a way round that for, even if you were to, were to put in something strict there, there could maybe be a way out whereby a perpetrator gets someone else to take the victim to court. And that's something that I'm try, trying to play with in my head also. Uh, you know, because you have the scenario where a parent really wants to take somebody to court. They'll use a child to take that person to court. And not, not even a domestic abuse setting, any setting. Uh, a parent can use a child to take a neighbour to court on a completely different scenario, and they'll get legal aid for that. Now, they're, they're dragging their child through the court system, which is horrendous, but it happens. It happened to me. So, in that regard, I think we have to be careful there in, in that. But, but this is where we have to come together and get a solution. Um, also, it was commented earlier about you don't want the victim to use this as a vendetta. Whilst you guys understand legal aid, I don't know that you understand domestic violence course of control because there be a very small amount of victims of domestic violence that would ever use the court as a vendetta. In my eyes, they do not want to see the court. They do not want to see the inside of a court. A victim of domestic violence will not want to go near the perpetrator in a court setting. Uh, that's one thing I would say. But yeah, listen, happy to keep your A26 in there. Uh, I don't know the burden of work. And I don't know how much we have to widen it out to, to, to consider all scenarios whereby uh, court would be used as a weapon against the victim. But that's probably what I'm looking to see. But then also, let's try and fix uh, or, or make better, is maybe the terminology I'll use, uh, clause 27 to make sure that the proposer's content and the department's content and we'll end it on that positive note. If I could embrace the positive note, uh, Mr. Frey, uh, I think that's a helpful uh, contribution. Uh, I, I'm not particularly fixated about the economics in a very narrow sense. I'm conscious that in the lower courts, 66% of the people who get legal aid are on passported benefits, so they, they actually don't pay any uh, contribution. And then you a, a number will pay a limited contribution, which as you see from the face of the amendment, is uh, a maximum of £234. Uh, I also acknowledge your point uh, about someone else being used as a vehicle by the abuser. I, I had made a, a similar observation the other day where it could well be uh, the, the parent of the abuser uh, presents himself as distinct from the abuser and wants to have access to the child. Um, that, that might be entirely appropriate if the, uh, if the grandmother, and I, I'm not picking on a grandmother, I'm just using it as, a, as an illustration, uh, has genuinely distanced himself from the child and the child won't be 
brought uh, near the victim, uh, near the uh, abuser. So we, we do recognise those very practical considerations. Uh, I think my, my only concern is that there are things that are easily identified and easily remedied. I think there's lots of other things that we need to work through uh, and we mightn't get a council of perfection at the start, but we, we need to quickly remedy them and, and move forward to address them. I hope that observation is helpful. Yep, thank you. Kinead, your, your hand's up. I'm not sure if that's to come back in on this. If you can unmute. Yeah. Yes, it's just um, to ask the official fee. In um, the letter, it did say that the committee view would be heard and something brought forward to us. Is there a timeline for that? Because I'd be very eager to see that sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, that's, that's an excellent point. Obviously, we'll, we'll have to talk to the minister because I think further consideration stage was pencilled in for the 7th. Um, and. You know, it would be difficult to get an amendment back to you for you to consider next Thursday and, and make that timeline. So, we, but but I mean, we will we will go back and, and take the minister's mind on that. And if she is so minded, we'll prepare an amendment then and 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 send it to the committee um, for for your views and discussion. But that's a conversation I need to have with the minister first. The committee has been in touch with the department and a New Year time frame, and we don't have any other meetings actually scheduled because the amendments have to be tabled for further consideration stage half nine next Wednesday. And so today was the day for the committee to consider the department's amendments, which we've got apart from legal aid. Um, so it puts the committee in a very difficult position, and it probably ends up on the floor of the assembly um, with individual parties taking a view. And we know how that worked out last time. So. Um, Linda, has, has she need, if you haven't finished, feel free to jump in again, and then Linda and Paul. Thank you, Chair. I would be very keen that we would see the wording of the amendment. I would like to have a committee position, to be honest. Chair, may not right and say we had scheduled the potential for a meeting on Tuesday? Yeah, we've made provisional if we aren't able to agree your positions today, but yes, if, if we're needing to put forward a committee amendment. Tuesday was the, the meeting for agreeing wording of a committee amendment. Um, it looks likely that we'll have to have a meeting on Tuesday because the department's going to tidy up a couple of the other ones. But I think we're, we will reach a consensus position on the other um, amendments between the department. At least I have form of wording to suggest to the committee. But yes, we are planning to have a meeting on Tuesday. If it's possible, I'm not saying that it will be, but if we're meeting, I, I think if we have the wording of an amendment before that and we're able to, I, mean, I certainly would like to be in a position to be able to have a committee position, and it may not be possible. We just have to be realistic about that, but that's, and that's fair enough if it's not, because we'll only know when we see the wording whether it's possible, to be fair. Um, Chair, on, sorry to jump in on the other amendments. I think if there is that meeting scheduled for Tuesday, as you say, it would be helpful for the committee to have had sight of those and, and basically for those to be signed off ahead of tabling as well. But I appreciate it. It's not for us to dictate in terms of when the committee does or doesn't meet. Well, members, there's provisional arrangements were made for a meeting on Tuesday if that was necessary. So I've no difficulty in having a, a meeting on Tuesday. Um, I'm not so sure the department will be ready with a civil legal aid amendment, though, in time, by the sounds of it. Paul, you had a follow-up on then, Rachel. Yeah, just a follow-up, just very quickly. Just uh, 
The amendments that you're working on on this, that get it to the minister as quick as you can, guys, and then get it to the committee as quick as you can. There, no doubt, you'll, you'll not have left this to the last minute. You'll have known the the, further, the consideration stage debate. You've came here to get clarification on the mind of the committee, which you have done, which I'm sure is very helpful. But you're bound to have something drafted with regards to an amendment, surely. Yeah, we, we, we haven't we haven't drafted drafted a provision with the draftsman yet, but we we've an idea of how we might instruct the draftsman. But we wanted to be clear uh, from this session, and it's been helpful uh, on the committee's mind. So, so thank you. Okay, Rachel. Just a point. It might be just for Veronica in terms of clause twenty-four, prohibit <coughs> prohibition of cross-examination in person, and that is regarding in family proceedings where specified evidence is adduced that a person who is a party to the proceeding has engaged in behaviour that was abusive of a witness uh, and is personally connected, that party might not cross-examine the witness in person. Um, it was my understanding that, that during that, that, that and in the FM as well that the, defar the part department would be bringing forward further regulations to or, or guidance for the courts and how that is set out? Not in relation to that one, unless it was something on Jane's side and the family proceedings. Could well in be terms of the 24 cross-examination. Cross-examination, yeah. No, we weren't envisaging on that one that there would be any further guidance. I suppose in, in terms of that provision, that's already in place in relation to human trafficking, modern slavery and sexual offences. So the, the domestic abuse offence bit will, will be an add-on as such to, to existing practice. But it may be that there was something on Jane's side. And, and apologies, I'm not familiar enough with her That's content to be able to advise on that. Just, just in terms of if there's going to be a level to which the courts have to go to in terms of evidence of domestic abuse without there being conviction, proceedings started, or anything else in family proceedings, how is that envisaged if there? Does there then need to be an evidentiary list or a, a list of what constitutes a victim drawn up for the courts? And if so, does that not apply to legal aid services? Because it would be the same. I'd, 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 as soon as you started talking about that similarity in the evidence, I take, took the note to see what read across there was going to be between the evidential requirements for the court and for the LSA. There's obviously a difference in that a court is there to some extent to make findings of fact and can look at different standards of evidence, standards of proof and come to determination by balancing one thing against the other. The LSA won't be in a position to do that. The thought that occurred to me is that one potential trigger for the, the financial eligibility waiver would be a determination by a court that the evidentiary, evidentiary uh, the, the, the requirement has been met for the purposes of barring cross-examination. That requires the department drawing up regulations to outline what could be deemed abusive behaviour to stop cross-examination, because it wouldn't be a fact-finding. It's but, about if there was an allegation of abuse. Yes. Oh, I'd, I'd say the, 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 that part of the bill is not my um, area, but I think if there is, if there's a test that is used for that purpose, there, it could, you may be able to link could well read across into the legal aid thing and help, was my thought. But um, I certainly have discussions with Jane in relation to that. If there's something in those family provisions that we could somehow link in for that purpose. 
be helpful. Just, it, it, if, if, the, if one of the problems is to how to identify what a victim is without having been prescriptive, yes, it's obviously going to be. I'll be trying to solve the same problem in two different two court. different spaces. We should certainly talk to each other. Um, that's all I wanted to ask. Okay. Okay. There's no other points of clarity then around the legal aid issue. Um, members, are you happy that we, in public session, just quickly try and go through the other ones to, to reach a, a committee view? And Veronica, you're welcome to stay for this, but we will follow it up in writing, just in case there's points that we want to clarify with you. No, that's fine, and that'll be helpful I was going to go into closed session, but I don't think on those other ones we maybe need to, if members are happy. I'll try my best to come up with where I think we are. If you, if you take members the... Uh, the department's paper, and we'll go through it then in that order. So the first one is around the guidance on the data collection amendment. Um, and maybe I didn't ask this at the time, but the only query that I had about that. Well, do you want the show your letter? Oh, sorry. First appendix A. Is that what you're looking? Twenty fourth yes. November letter. I'm looking at appendix A. Sorry. Let me just make sure I've got the right one. No. Alright, wrong, wrong document. Page 18 of your table pack. That's the one I've got scribbles over. issues then with the long title. No issues with clause 39 in terms of the short title. On the A26 information sharing with schools, the Operation Encompass one, the only area that I seen we discussed on that was the potential inclusion of preschools. Is the department can look at that aspect of it. Um, No issues with clause. Don't know. Hold on. Clause twenty-eight, subsection two. That's the encompass. Let's just. Okay, that was okay. Um, protective measures then for victims. Um. The age issue was going to be looked at. Yeah, and I'll have discussions with Nicky on that tomorrow in relation to the list 18 for the perpetrator. And the other aspect, members, was. 2B. The broader, 2B. yeah, the 2B, the broader element in the committee provision. Yeah. And okay, so we're going to see if we can incorporate 2B. Just in relation to the age 
Just yeah. to check with the Children's Commissioner and take a stater from tomorrow yeah, on that. Yes, yeah, I'll have a chat right. with them in the morning. Then the next one is the training aspect of it. Um, so the department, we're going to look at bringing back into play the issue around including but not limited. Not limited to. And then the annual reporting aspect was going to be brought in either at this yeah. section or in the reporting section. Okay. Then the independent oversight. The department we're going to look about bringing back in. Yes, you remove the two, three B. years bit. Yes. In terms of in terms of addressing the one B the to be consulted aspect around it. Chair, can I just check in terms of that one the thirty one B one? Yeah. Is it just in relation to the um sorry, I just find this in my provisions. Um is it in relation to review, report and make recommendations in relation to the guidance that's wanted there? Yes, because our, our as it's now in the bill is review report make recommendation in relation to the operation of part one okay so it's that broader uh -huh. b that you want back in yeah okay and then in terms of the the guidance bit more generally um we need to remove the the consulted and make that stronger well in effect i would just really like to see that the B replaced with B. Okay. You know, in terms of the role of the independent person is to review, report, make recommendations in relation to operation of part one. Okay. Probably would be the case then, I would imagine, obviously this will be for the drafts person, but I would imagine they will probably morph. That, that would probably end up not being two bits. Mm -hmm. They would probably incorporate B into the current A, given that it's making reference to reporting. Yeah. But yes, um, content that we look at that. So can I ask Christo on that? Where where is the guidance fall in the bill? Because if it's not part one, then you might want to add the guidance also. Uh, so where in the blue bill does it state um, the guidance? Because if it's not in part one, then you might want to add that the independent overseer also has a part to play. In revision of the guidance? No, it is part one. Because part two is basically the civil proceedings. Yes. So, so by saying, oh, I've lost my page now. So, so by saying then that uh, uh, the independent overseer reviews, reports, and makes Make recommendations. recommendations in relation to the operation of part yeah. one, that includes the guidance? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If we make that change, because th this is addressing the issue that I mentioned, I don't want the appointment to be the like a prohibition on the actual <laughs> offence coming into effect because the guidance is ready, ready to go. Yeah. But they need to be able to... Hello, if the committee wants something specifically stated in relation to the guidance, you know, I think you could do a review report. You know, you, you could weave that in some way without... Yeah. Um, you know, because we're no longer doing... Uh, or would no longer have that bit about contributing to the development. Mm -hmm. But if the committee wanted something specifically referenced on the guidance within that provision, you know, that can be done as well. 
Yeah. Okay. We're happy either way. Yeah. No, that's fine. Okay. okay. Then the next one is the reporting on the operation part. So around that, you are going to. We'll remove that subsequent yes, three B year periods. Yeah, the B and C, and I, th I think council will probably put something in about subsequent reporting period, subsequent reporting periods being three years since the previous reporting period, or something to that effect. Um, and we'll also put in provision that means that that ongoing reporting could potentially be changed by way of affirmative regulations. But that would mean it would then be coming back to the house, and we're not, we're not. It, it will be ongoing until yeah. such time as the assembly decides, type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the, the annual, the training aspect of that, it may be in this section yeah, on the reporting. Move. The other one, and Sinead brought it up. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty content with the revised wording of raising public awareness as to how it's been explained. But that was a change from strategies to raising public awareness. But I know that's something Sinead you, you had mentioned. Yeah, I'm content. To be fair, I think um, I, I do think strategy is a firmer position. To be fair, um, but I think you know the it's it's reasonable in this context to make the move that's been made, given that we have the independent oversight. I think that's reasonable. Okay. Well, then that that, okay. co that covers the amendments Veronica had been dealing with, and I think. Pretty close to, to being able to agree a joint position on that, yeah. and we'll meet on Tuesday to do that. On the, I think that would be helpful just in terms of the committee having sight of those and being content, rather than if there's anything outstanding having to have that. Well, we can't have the debate on the floor of the house, if, if you know what I mean. But yeah, we'd, we'd be keen, obviously, to get that resolved if, if there was anything further. Okay. You know, that, that's very helpful, and thank you. Okay, thank you, Veronica, as always. Um, the, the legal aid members, is there any more? Things that we want to tease out around the legal aid amendment. Um, obviously, the department will hopefully come come to us. Um, I would like to get to a position on Tuesday as well, um, and I need to see exactly what the department are talking about. You know, because they haven't. They've raised a lot of their general concerns, but they haven't definitively said, "Here's what we believe the parameter should be." And that makes it difficult to think for for other members. That's why I want to say their amendment because I'm hoping that something will be in that because I, I still have the concerns that and, and some of the stuff they raised just reaffirm all of my concerns. However, I don't think any of it's insurmountable, and that's why I said I want them to come forward with an amendment because we all actually offered solutions. You know, everybody in the committee here offered solutions to. With some of the issues they were raising, and I'm not saying our solutions are right, but they're at least given food for thought. And if we can come up with them, we don't understand the stuff inside out. We're not getting the legal advice and, and the departmental official advice that, that the department are getting. So I just I would like to see a really good amendment that would allow for this to happen in a good way that wouldn't actually have some of the unintended consequences that they're talking about because. Honestly, as somebody who's going to be part of, um, at the end of the day, having part of developing this legislation, I don't want it to have a consequence that I would be devastated by, to think that it's going to further 
of a negative impact on, on victims, and that's really my only concern. But I do think that the department can, can come up with I do think there's a potential for a good amendment here. I don't believe that that it's a, that it is insurmountable. In fact, when we were talking at the end, I felt like we were all almost saying the same things, but just not giving it any, as you said, any definition about what could the parameters be. But I think there was plenty of good solutions, or at least potential solutions, thrown out in this meeting. Well, we will on Tuesday. Hopefully, we'll see what they're saying. That that could be a very quick turnaround, either for a, a member or a committee to come up with a revised wording. If we can't, if the department isn't doing exactly what we want, and that could make it quite difficult because you'd be meeting on Tuesday and potentially saying we don't agree with the department, but a committee position could include part of the department's approach, and then you need a committee amendment. And, and we mightn't be able to do that either. And that could be a challenge. We can't, we're going to be left then to take a party position on whether we can support the amendment or not. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, and Chair, I'm still of the mind that we should do something with their A26. Um, now, the only thing I can see is the third limb there, the third subsection, is qualifying proceedings or proceedings for an order that is an Article 8 order within the meaning of the Children on Ireland Order 1995. And that might need widened up, that third limb. Uh, to, to embrace more aspects, mm -hmm. but I think that's the only change that I would like to see in that amendment that they have produced. They have tried to keep it specific to Article 8, uh, but there is no reason why that can't be widened out to meet more court proceedings, because people will use, whilst we look at a domestic, uh, domestic abuse site, and then that, that brings in children's orders and court orders and everything else prohibit. There could be a widening. There could be a wider weapon used by the perpetrator with regards to other court case scenarios. So I, I wouldn't want them to drop this amendment. I would think I would still like to see a report. I think that if they were listening to you, Paul, then they should be keeping something in relation to that end because you made that point. So if they don't have it in there, I think that they're miss actually missing a, a page. And there was parts of that amendment, um, you know, in terms of making sure nobody incurred costs. It might want to put in as well to the current bill, because that was being flagged up that actually this still won't remove costs because you're going to have this. Or the, so uh, it, yeah. that, one of that may you might want to put in as well as a committee, Rachel. Thanks, Chair. No, I think A26. I have a, a big problem with A26, as we know, but in terms of getting the report. The only, really, the part of, of A26, if we're going to add a report requirement on the department, is getting rid of three to remove just Article 8, if you're wanting to look at other things. Yes. So all of those things don't mean that another amendment can't be in tandem and dovetail with. So if, the, if we want to look at you know, all, all these proposals that could possibly be made for amending civil legal services regulations for the relevant purpose of protecting victims of domestic abuse, right, that's fine. That's there. The only thing that you need to remove is, then, is the Article 8 order mm -hmm. reference and then all of those other things in terms of costs or no, incurring no costs. But I would, I would have liked to have seen a departmental wording today to go over it. Um, I think there is potentially a wording buried in that letter mm -hmm. in terms of what their purpose is and you know and who the defence issue. But we tease that out, that does then exclude some some things. Um I certainly have a draft mm -hmm. 
um, of, and I'm happy to discuss that in closed session with the committee, but I would like to see what the department come forward with. Okay. Okay. Well, um, that deals with the. Sinead, you have your hand up. I've just. Oh no, it's away. Um, well, that, that deals with all the other amendments, um, as opposed, with the exception of civil legal aid, which the department need to come forward with to to talk to us about. Again, um, we'll obviously need to have that meeting on Tuesday around these other amendments. Um, I'm going to take a, a short recess um, to facilitate some of the staff behind the scenes that haven't had an opportunity to, to get a break, which is why I need to do it. Um, so we're going to reconvene. Um, Seven o'clock. Sorry, I know your evening's ruined, but um, this is this is this is the best you can get for a night out these days. And anyway, in this assembly, great company. So we will we will reconvene at seven for the next evidence session, um, and we'll get through the rest of the business thereafter. So apologies for that, members, but it is what it is. Okay, meeting adjourned until seven. This is the north. Um, let's move on to item six on the agenda. Uh, departmental officials are attending uh, via the Starley facility to provide an update on the tackling paramilitary activity, criminality, and organised crime programme. The relevant uh, papers are in your meeting pack. So, if I can welcome uh, the team from the castle, it uh, should be Adele Brown, programme director; Christopher Farrington; Mary Lemon. Uh, from the Tackling Paramilitary Activity um, Criminal Organised Crime Programme team, all within the Department of Justice. Uh, the session will be recorded by Hansard, a transcript of which will be published on the committee webpage in due course. So uh, I think it is Ms Brown I'm going to be handing over to to provide us with an overview, and then members will have some questions. So thank you. Good evening, Chair, and thank you very much for still having us on. I know you've had a very busy day. We've been watching proceedings, so we do appreciate you, you taking the time to, to um, talk to us a little bit more about the programme. I'll just say a few remarks to set the context, if that's okay. It, it may be helpful just to clar clarify a few points at the outset. The first is to say that while the programme team is hosted by DOJ, we're not actually DOJ representatives or, or policy leads. We will try our very best to answer questions on DOJ issues, but for some of the detail we may need to refer or to colleagues or, or seek additional information. The second point I would make is that um, the programme is much wider than just justice, um, vitally important though that is. Uh, the programme is, as you're aware, is cross-executive in nature and, and relies on close partnership working with the, the wider public, community and voluntary sectors. And if the community, if the committee felt it would be helpful at some stage, we would happily return uh, with some of those non-justice delivery leads for a bit of a deeper dive on specific issues. In terms of the programme team, um, our main role is to oversee and coordinate the activity across the 38 commitments in the Executive Action Plan. And the programme has taken a programmatic approach to delivery. We have a, a senior, senior responsible owner from the Department of Justice, but across departmental programme board. We don't actually carry out much of the delivery that sits with others and other departments and, and agencies. At the last count, we had seven departments involved, 22 statutory agencies and 50 other partners. And that reflects the very complex nature of the problem that we're dealing with in the programme, but also where the levers and expertise sit to address it. 
Phase one of the programme had four key areas um, that we focused on. The first was long-term prevention, so things like youth work, probation, public awareness. The second was strategies and powers, so the paramilitary crime task force and various legislative initiatives. The third was confidence in the justice system, um, a number of procedural reforms there, and policing with the community. And finally, um, capacity to support transition, which encompassed a number of different initiatives um, at an individual and community level. In terms of progress, the, the action plan has been delivered largely by officials over the last four years, and the team have had to work hard to find sensitive ways to discuss some really quite tricky issues with partners in the absence of assembly and ministers. Good progress has been made in many areas, we think. Um, some of those are listed in the written briefing, which we have given you, and have also been referred to in the Independent Reporting Commission's annual report, which was published last week. Um, they note that just under half of the actions in the original plan are now complete, with the rest well underway. But sadly, as members will be acutely aware, paramilitary coercion and harm is still a daily feature in some communities in Northern Ireland. And that's a, a matter of considerable regret for those of us in the programme. Um, and certainly, from our perspective, a strong reason to redouble our efforts to extend the work of the programme for a second phase. In the last year, uh, like everybody else, our delivery has been affected by COVID, but we've seen some real creativity and commitment, personal and professional, um, by delivery leads and agencies to make sure that vulnerable people are supported, particularly young people. And this has very much um, been in need because, of course, paramilitary activity has continued and we and others are very concerned about criminals exploiting the hardships and vulnerabilities of others um, in this context, whether that's, for example, mental health issues, addiction, debt, trauma, family breakdown, violence or abuse. COVID has also affected our planning horizons and our delivery plans for phase two. Our funding for this phase of the programme ends in March 2021. Our plans for a three-year extension of the programme uh, based on an extensive review earlier this year, um, and we've provided you a copy of that for reference, were endorsed by the executive in July. And that endorsement came with an executive funding commitment of £8 million a year, but was subject to confirmation of match funding from the UK government. Our plan, taking account of all the learning um, that we've, we've had during phase one, was to continue some projects amend others and introduce new approaches where that was appropriate to address gaps. Um, we plan to have two work streams, one that focused on reducing harm in the, in the here and now and making sure that we're supporting victims, and one that focused on early interventions, very much designed to break the cycle of, of recruitment and coercion. And within all these projects that we're hoping to support, we want to see a, a really strong focus on additionality. Um, we want to be adding value and not duplicating effort of work that is done by other departments or agencies. And we also want to make sure that our work links to wider initiatives across government. So we're very conscious of wider um, programme for government um, aims and objectives and, and want to be able to dovetail with those. And we also want to make sure that we are supporting projects which have an enduring impact beyond the lifetime of this programme. We had very much hoped to come here uh, this evening to discuss with you um, more of the detail of 
what the shape of that phase two programme would look like and to take your mind on that. However, we are still waiting on funding details, so we don't yet have the quantum of overall funding that we will receive. And that's important because the funding um, that we do receive will determine the shape of what we can deliver. Um, as well, the fact that this will now be a one-year settlement rather than three. And of course, we're also mindful that any work that the programme supports in phase two will need to be done in a context where COVID is present and that will bring its own challenges. If we do secure funding, um, what we want to do is continue to break down what is a really large, complex problem into smaller, more manageable issues um, that can be dealt with at local level, with local expertise, and then scale back up through good practice and joint working. Uh, we hope that within the delivery reports and uh, the review we have provided to you, along with some of the stats um, and outcomes that we can talk to you about in more detail, you will see that there is a good story here to tell about progress. We know there is more to do, um, and for that, we think we need to extend the programme. The programme is not a panacea, we're very conscious of that, but it does, in our view, provide um, a very conscious and effective effort to make sure that um, focus remains on tackling what is a really difficult, naughty and long-term problem. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Um, just a couple of questions for me, and I suppose I caveat this um, in terms of the, the amount of questions that I want to ask, because I know in the spring, once we have a bit more clarity around the second phase of the programme, then I suspect we'll, we'll want to engage further with you on that. Um, but initially, you've mentioned the funding and the importance of that funding in terms of getting clarity. Where are you waiting from the clarity to be found? Is that DOJ, um, NIO, um, and, and what's the time frame for getting a definitive answer on whether or not you're going to get the funding needed? Um, so we're currently waiting on confirmation of the, of the match funding. So we haven't had that yet from the UK government. Um, that's being negotiated on our behalf by the NIO. So that's what we're currently waiting on. Um, once we have some indication of that, then we can start to move forward with our plans. Um, my understanding is that they are moving to get us some clarity on this. We had very much hoped, as I say, that we would have that by the time we came to the committee. Um, and certainly with the announcement of the, the Chancellor yesterday around about the settlement, we, we hope that that will move things along and um, hopefully within the next few days or, or weeks we will get some clarity because we are now in a position where we are um, just over four months away from the end of our funding period and we're very conscious that in many cases this um, is presenting challenges for both delivery leads and, and those within the, the community and voluntary sector. Um, where we're currently supporting projects. And while some of the, the bigger agencies might be able to absorb um, those challenges in terms of, of finance, it's the, it's the smaller groups and organisations that we're particularly keen to, to give clarity on. I think we're also very keen to get a, a sense of the shape of, of the quantum of funding so that we can have some more political engagement around about this. We very much appreciate now having the opportunity with the Assembly and Ministers back to, ha to have a bit more discussion and political direction 
around about the programme. So um, the sooner that we can get clarity on this, the sooner we can start that engagement and give some certainty to people about what we're going to be supporting in the next phase. Okay. Um, I'll bring in other members at this stage. So Linda Dillon. Couple of points. I think the chair is right. Obviously, we will want more engagement whenever we see what phase two looks like. But just, I mean, you've outlined, and I apologise if I ask or make points on it, and that you've said because my hearing is not brilliant, and I'm, I am struggling to hear on Starlink this evening. Um, but just in relation to to trying to shape it, I think that it's important, and communities have shown, particularly over this pandemic, but not only over this pandemic, but they have shown what communities can actually do and what they can deliver. And I suppose it's just around in shaping that phase two, how you're including communities or basing the work that is going to be done within the community setting. Because we all know the reality is you'll be able to engage people better with people they identify with. That's just, and it doesn't matter what you're talking about, that's in any sphere. It's much easier to engage people who if they can identify with you as, as somebody they say is on their side or speaking up for them or you know that's that's kind of the first thing. The other thing just is in, in relation to communities in transi transition, I note that it's planned that they'll get twelve million over a three year period, whereas it was twelve million over a twelve to fifteen month period previously and I have some concern around that because that's a reduction in funding of almost two thirds. And I mean communities in transition started two to three years behind every everyone else, so there needs to be some recognition given to that. So reducing their funding mightn't be the best way to address it. And just the the, the last thing then is the third IRC report recommended the establishment of the transition process for paramilitary groups as distinct from individual members making that transition. Theme three in the proposed activity for phase two seems to largely focus on individuals. Is that recommendation something that will be included in phase two of the programme? I know there's a lot in that. Apologies. Thank you. I'll try and work through those in, in, in turn and maybe bring in some colleagues as well. Um, hopefully you can hear us okay. So I think the first question was around about um, the extent to which we make sure that we are listening to communities in the development of proposals. And I think we recognise that that's absolutely the case. We also recognise that in many cases there is a, a lack of trust with statutory agencies and um, we need to overcome that. And I think some of the work that we have done within phase has, has started in some cases, not all cases, but to, um, to to address that. And actually, you mentioned communities in transition, and, and that's absolutely critical part of, of this programme to make sure that, that people at a community level are engaging um, and are engaged with and, and listened to. And there are a series of initiatives under the communities in transition um, part of the programme, which, which allow people to do that. And over the duration that that has been running, um, communities in transition have been very clearly speaking to communities and, and taken back their feedback and, and have very much built their proposals for phase two around about that. So I hope I can provide some, some reassurance there. Uh, I'll maybe ask Christopher to, to come in at that point just on the funding for communities in transition. Just to, to be clear, there's been no funding decisions taken at all about what should be done in phase two 
So, but Christopher, I can maybe give you some more detail on, on what has been allocated to communities in transition over the very, various different periods within phase one. Uh, yeah, yeah, so you'll, you'll be aware that um, there is uh, part due to the um, suspension of the assembly and a lack of ministers and also due to the, um, the, the consultation process that the communities in transition and the executive office undertook on that, that um, it was slower to get off the ground. Um, and that meant that kind of the um, profile of their funding over the, the 15, 18 months they have been going um, was not either, I think, what we would have liked or, or what the executive office would have liked. So um, I, I think that we've always been keen to make sure that we have, uh, in relation to that project, in fact, in relation to most projects, we have a kind of a stable profile so that we're not ending up with spikes and, and so forth. So um, I don't think it was ever the intention that um, we would be delivering the volume of funding through communities in transition this year that we were that we are at the minute uh, and about three million a year or four million a year was a, was about what was profiled at the very start of the of the program so um given um, adele's caveats around no decisions being taken on, on any kind of funding across the program um that profile is in line with what we were expecting throughout the course of phase one can, can i just make one Sorry, one point in relation to the engagement with community. I, I'm actually talking about a step further than what, you, what you're what you're alluding to there around, you know, engaging with the community in terms of shaping the programme. What I mean is communities and voluntary and community sector within communities could deliver some of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying instead of some of the stats in conjunction with, because we know that the truth of it is when you work with voluntary and community, you generally get more bang for your buck. You know, you you do get you talked about additionality there, and I think that's where you do get it, because they tend to have less of an eye to the clock and overtime. They're getting what they're getting, and that's it. But they have a very vested interest because it's their community. They live in it and they care about it. So, and that's not to say that there aren't very very good people within statutory agencies who are, and and different organisations who are delivering these programmes, because there certainly are, and we need. But I think we need the mix. And I think that that's important because that's where you will get the real engagement, where people identify with those who are delivering the programmes to them. I'm, I'm certainly not saying instead of, but in conjunction with and alongside. And I think that's very much in, in line with the ethos of the programme and what we're what we're seeking to build. And we fully recognise that um, you know one of the principles that I didn't mention that we're very keen to, to build on for phase two is, is a locality-based sort of a, approach to, to developing initiatives, and that recognises that um, local communi communities know best about what what they need um, and how they can deliver that. They've got the expertise, um, and actually we would be incredibly foolish not to to take account of that um, and to listen to that and to draw on it. We do have a number of projects that we're currently supporting, which I think um, demonstrate that, that we're committed to doing that and certainly committed to, to building on it. Christopher, maybe we could yeah, give so a few examples. Just, just to reassure you on that point, so of the programme funding that's gone out so far, about 18 million has gone directly to the voluntary and community sector. And most of the, of the bigger projects that were supported um, through the, the programme are collaborations between statutory and voluntary community sector organisations and some of the really, really good practice we have seen um, has come from those collaborations. So um, the Aspire project, which is uh, run by the probation board, but is run in conjunction with um, voluntary community sector partners. 
um, on the ground uh, at a, a roughly kind of 50-50 split in terms of service provision uh, and, and financing. Um, it has, for example, it won a, a social work award um, there last year and has a fantastic evaluation that's been done externally on that. So, um, and, that, and that is statutory agencies working hand in hand on in a local basis with voluntary community sector partners. The STAR project is another really good example. It's the Education Authority. Very little of that is delivered by statutory provision. It's all delivered, not, not quite all of it, depending on the area. There were a few areas that we couldn't get voluntary community sector partners, but the majority of that is delivered by voluntary community sector partners on the ground uh, and is overseen by the Education Authority. So I want to reassure you that that is the approach that the majority of the of the programme takes and is the kind of approach that we've begun to see really, really good um, partnerships and results coming from. Thank you, Chair, because I do accept also that obviously there are communities that have stronger infrastructure than others, so you do need the mix and the balance. Thank you, Chair. That's me. I think you, you asked a question tonight about group transition. Would you like me Sorry, to yes. follow up on that? Um, so, so I think it's probably quite important just to, to revert back and think about what the original executive action plan asked us to do and asked us to do um, in, in terms of transition specifically. So the focus very much of the executive action plan has been on individual sort of personal and, and community transition and that's where um, a lot of the efforts have gone. So in, in terms of individual transition, it's very much been about trying to identify vulnerabilities that make people susceptible to paramilitary criminality, coer um, criminality and, and coercion and control. Um, and in a community base is very much about, again, the sorts of things that you've mentioned about building community capacity from, from within communities and providing them with a little bit more resilience. The, the original plan didn't talk in any detail about group transition and I know that this is something that the IRC are very focused on and we have had a number of discussions with them and will no doubt continue to do that. I think um, certainly looking at this in phase two would be um, quite a significant departure from, from the original action plan and we would certainly want to consider that carefully um, and I'm sure that the Minister for Justice would also want to consider that with her executive colleagues because as the independent reporting commission um, have acknowledged themselves this is a, a really quite controversial topic and um, not necessarily one that that would um everybody would have a, a uniform response to we, we have done a fair bit of talking to to people and um, i'll maybe bring in mary here because she, she leads in our stakeholder engagement but as far as i'm aware mary I don't think the issue of, of group transition has come up in, in some of the discussions that we've been having. Uh, no, I mean, to, um, before COVID, um, we did have quite a lot of engagement um, with um, community leaders and with people in the community and with statutory agencies de delivering work in the community around the whole issue of um, personal transition. And um, I think it's fair to say that the, the kind of issues that they were bringing up in those kind of focused conversations were around um, how we could help to build community resilience by in looking at this work and about helping people to feel safe and about get, providing support to individuals. Um, and actually, the kind of issues that were coming up um, rather than around group transition were things about trying to support ind individuals with through issues like education and training, employment and health and addressing addictions. And those were the kind of issues that were coming up in discussion at that point. Now, we had been hoping to kind of 
embark on, a, on an extended range of engagement around that issue. But obviously, with COVID striking, it became a bit of a problem for us because obviously these are the kind of discussions you'd like to be having in person, really. It's difficult to do this kind of thing using Zoom. Um, but we do recognise that there is a, a much wider, there's, there's a need for a much wider engagement on this. And um, going into phase two, we are certainly really keen to expand the scope of our engagement and to hear from a, a much wider range of voices, including on the issue of group transition, since that has arisen as, as an issue. Um, so I think it would definitely benefit, and we're keen to do much further engagement at a, at a political level on it. But also, um, we'd, we'd really like to um, expand that range. We'd love to talk to some younger people about it. And we'd like to really bring some new voices into this space. And, and certainly, you know, if the committee has any suggestions or thoughts around that, we'd be really keen to hear about that because it would be really good to get some new voices to, to speak to about this. So certainly over the next VY, we will be engaging with delivery leads on it and, and looking to expand that range of engagement. Thank you. Okay, Rachel Wood. Thank you, um, and thanks for your presentation and the hefty uh, agenda um, pack that we have. Um, I have a couple of sort of practical questions. Just first off, um, the programme board um, says that it is headed up by the head of civil service. Is that currently not meeting because we don't have one? Uh, no, the, the programme board is continuing to meet, but we haven't had, um, because of the delay in an announcement around about funding, we haven't actually scheduled anything um, during the time when the, there's not been somebody in post. Um, we are most likely to, as soon as we get some clarity around about funding, we will schedule a, a programme board um, it, that will go ahead, um, even if there's not somebody in the head of the civil service post. We, we have a senior res responsible officer. Um, who, who can oversee proceedings, so we're, we're keen to, to go ahead with that in any event. Okay, that's good to know, just that there isn't any, going to be any sort of delay on anything because there isn't um, a head of civil service in place. Another question is the cross-party political advisory group. Could you give me some more details on who sits on that, what their terms of reference are, and you know what, what parties they're from? So um, the political advisory group, as I understand it, and colleagues will keep me right here, um, was used uh, during the period when there, there was no assembly and ministers as a, as a great way of having a conduit for some sort of political engagement around about the programme. Um, it reflected at that time um, the executive um, parties and that's been resurrected in the same sort of form. We can provide you with some specific terms of reference if that is the case, um, if, if it's helpful to you. So it, basically it's the executive the parties which are within the executive. Um, certainly, I, I would certainly welcome that, not being executive party um, and having little if no engagement, probably zero engagement, um, as, yeah, um, I don't think that reflects um, all political issues, obviously, and especially whenever it's to do with problem solving around um, challenges or emerging issues. Um, I think if you're going to be looking at um, different voices, it might be... Um, might be advisable to extend the remit if it's an advisory group. Other other voices might need to be heard, otherwise you get the same thing over and over again. Um, in terms of funding allocations, if this doesn't come through, will there be a gap then in service provision between March and April or May or June or whenever tenders are appointed? 
So we, we hope that there won't be, um, and that's very much what, what we're working to. But um, as I say, we are we are very much reliant upon getting a decision on this from, from the UK government. Um, so we're, we're pushing on a, on a daily basis to get that. I know they are keen to provide us with that clarity as well. Um, on the political advisory group, I'm very happy to take away that suggestion um, and make some, some recommendations around about that. And I think, Rachel, you know from, from talking to me before, we, we are very keen um, to reach out and to speak to any elected representatives about the issues on the programme. And part of our um, very conscious focus in, in phase two will be increasing that political engagement and um, political awareness around about what is happening in, in different constituencies. We, we really want to, as I said, um, genuinely hear from elected representatives about what they think the issues are in, the, in their areas in a sort of unfiltered sense. So um, very happy to, to um, come back and perhaps talk to you separately, Rachel, if, if you've got any particular ideas about what you think might be useful. I'm not suggesting myself, I'm just saying if you want different voices, it might be good to speak to other people that aren't the same um, for the last couple of years. Um, but just back to the, if the funding isn't in, our, and we're working towards the, the, the sort of premise that funding will come in, but when are you, are you planning on tendering soon? Or it's just, like if, imagine a time where if, you, if the money comes in, or if the money comes in at the last minute, how will tenders be appointed without there being a gap in service? Um, so it depends a little bit on, on arrangements that, that each individual agency or department has in place. Um, we expect that there may be the opportunity to extend some of the existing contracts or existing funding arrangements that exist um, for for projects that might be might be rolling over. Um, and I think. Um, as we get on further on, uh, if we don't get clarity, then we're going to have to start having those conversations to see where the flexibilities are and, and what is possible, what's being delivered. Um, although you are right, if a, if a contract comes to an end and we cannot provide funding and tenders cannot go out, there will, there will be a gap. Um, we we kind of we've, we haven't done quite an exercise to find out exactly where all those gaps are at the minute, but our expectation is, is that we should be able to extend some of the contracts across the program um but at the, we're not hope well we haven't been anticipating that that will be an issue at the minute um, I, th I think the other point to note is that, that we are dealing with quite a different context to that which we've been dealing with in previous years so one of the things that we'll have to look at as part of a, a one-year settlement and a one-year program for assuming we get one year's funding um, is the context that, that COVID is going to make delivery really quite difficult. So we need to make sure that the projects that we're supporting are actually capable of being delivered within that context. Um, and you know that's another factor that, that we'll want to look quite closely at in terms of um, the shape of the overall programme. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just a of concern. Just if, I, I appreciate that if there's going to be sort of like a bridge or you know a, a, a flexibility in terms of extending contracts, but if there's community and voluntary organisations and, and small scale um, groups that are doing this work um, and if they were then asked to be flexible and, and carry it on for a month or two, you know, it, does that mean that they will then get the contract for the next year? Sort of, ca can they be that flexible? I'm just wondering if you've had any communications with 
the current service providers um, about that, or is that something that you would do later on and towards the end of the financial year? So I think we're in a very difficult position because we, we don't want to give anybody um, some certainty where it doesn't exist. Um, we've been very upfront with all our delivery leads. Return have been upfront and very clear with everybody else um, that until we have some certainty around about the funding, we you know we, we can't give more than that at the moment, which, as I said right at the outset, is, is really tricky for a lot of people and we fully acknowledge that and that's why um, all our efforts at the moment are, are going into making sure that, that we try and get some clarity around about this as quickly as possible. Um, I, I think it would be difficult to allow some flexibility around about tendering arrangements. Um, we have to work within the, the confines of the, you know, the rules that, that, that are given to us. Um, but we fully appreciate the, the challenges uh, that, this is, that this is causing or could cause if, if it is um, delayed any further. Yeah, thank you and I appreciate the difficult position you're in as well but obviously with a lot of the groups that are operating services at the moment with um, vulnerable communities if they were to leave suddenly that doesn't it doesn't paint a very good picture or impression for communities on the providers or you know it sort of it's as if service has just been taken away um, but I do appreciate that that's something that is completely out of your control when you wait for funding um, my, I have many questions, but my last one will be just on the Centre of Restorative Excellence. Um, and if there, just it says in the review uh, report that there's been a working group set up. If I could ask about the working group or who, who sits on that, and just if there is any update on the restorative justice strategy and the Centre of Restorative Excellence. So, um, Christopher, I think can maybe give you a bit more detail in terms of the membership. The, the departmental working group, as I understand it, um, was established in January 29, and I think it's got um, representatives from the community-based restorative justice organisations that, that are accredited. Um, I, I know that the Minister of Justice is certainly keen to take forward um, work in this area, and it's a key priority for the, the department and officials that have begun to finalised design proposals, um, which also involves working with the Executive Office to ensure that a fund is established to support the centre. Um, Christopher, is there any more detail that, that you can offer? Um, so just on, on the working group, it does right, it's the uh, accredited restorative justice organisations plus um, strategy organisations that have a, a particular interest, which included Department for Communities, uh, Housing Association, PSNI, um, and uh, I apologise, I don't have the list in front of me, but I, those are the kinds of, of names. We can certainly, if you want more detail, uh, and, and certainly in your second question about the link with the restorative justice strategy, I think we would have to go and ask um, DOJ officials that are leading on that, if you want to, more detail on that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Any other members? No. Chair, no. Oh, sorry, she sorry. Did, yes. No, it's fine. It was just about the working group. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, I'm a member of that um, political um, group, so Rachel, I'd love you to be there. <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, um, I'll be getting another briefing, I think, on, on all of this in, in due course. But listen, the Justice Committee has its place, and that's why the Department have came here, and quite rightly so. Um, so that's the place for them to be, to be engaging with all of the parties um, through this forum as well. Okay, well, listen, um, thank you very much for, for joining us through the Starleaf. Um, we, we will want to pick this up 
um, once there's a bit more clarity around the funding aspects of this and get into a bit more discussion around some of the, the schemes and so on associated with it at that stage. But um, can I thank you all for, for joining with us this evening? Thank you very much for your time and I'm very happy to provide any further information if members are, are interested. Thank you. Thanks, Adele. Okay. Okay, members, well then we'll move on to the next item. Item 7. Uh, the committee stage of the committal reform bill commenced on the 17th of November and the 30 working day period provided under the standing orders for completion is due to finish on the 18th of January next year. Uh, the standing orders provide that before the conclusion of that 30 working days, a motion may be made in the Assembly, um, either myself or uh, Linda on behalf of the committee to extend the period for the committee stage. The motion must specify a date to which the committee stage will be extended. So there's been a provisional timetable for the committee stage prepared, and it can be found on pages 667 and 668 of your meeting pack. Uh, the timetable is based on an extension uh, until at the latest 11th of June 2021. Now the intention will be to complete the committee stage of the bill earlier, uh, if possible. Um, the extension provides the flexibility to deal with other issues that may arise and enables the committee to manage what is a heavy legislative programme, which will include the stocking bill, miscellaneous provisions bill, and potentially a personal injury uh, discount rate bill, um, if it does not proceed by way of accelerated passage, uh, and prioritise various bills then at particular times. Um, obviously, we both have Christmas and Easter recesses that need to be factored uh, into this period as well. So if we didn't have all those pressures, members, we would be able to put this bill through much quicker, but we do have all those pressures, and we need to, to, to ensure that we don't create uh, a deadline that isn't actually something that's achievable. So I would like to get this done before the 11th of June, um, and that's the, the absolute outer limit, but um, there's a number of factors that we just need to, to bear in mind. So, if members are agreeable um, with the timetable that's been outlined uh, and the date um, for the extension, then uh, a formal motion will be lodged in the business office that will be heard before uh, the Christmas recess. If members are agreeable, great. So, let me put the, the formal question then: that in accordance with Standing Order 334, uh, the period referred to in Standing Order 332 be extended to the 11th of June. 2021 in relation to the committee stage of the Criminal Justice Committal Reform Bill. Members are agreed. Okay. Well, we'll request the debate on the motion, um, and that'll take place either on the 7th or the 14th of December. But as members now know, that's a straightforward piece of work. Item eight. The meeting on the 5th of November, the committee considered a proposal by the department to make a statutory rule to correct. Northern Ireland legislation relating to the carriage of explosives, which would otherwise cease to function properly at the end of the EU transition period. The Committee sought uh, further information from the Department on whether the proposed um, SR will ensure the continued alignment of all regulations for the carriage of dangerous goods, or whether the Department had identified any gaps. The Department responded, indicating that the SR will ensure alignment for Class 1 goods, and no gaps have been identified with that class. The Health and Safety Executive um, for Northern Ireland is responsible for the remaining classes of dangerous goods legislation and is proposing to make similar SR uh, in relation to those uh, areas to ensure no gaps remain in the re regulatory framework. So 
If members are content with the proposed statutory rule, let me bring in Sinead Bradley. Apologies, Chair. My hand should have oh, been down. That's, sorry, that's okay. So, members content then with the proposed SR? Agreed? Agreed. Um, item 9. Um, departmental officials attended a meeting on the 22nd of October to outline the results of the consultation on a new legal framework for setting the personal injury discount rate. Officials indicated the Department is proposing to adopt a new legal framework to provide for the Government actuary to set the rate with reference to a notional portfolio and standard adjustments as prescribed in Scotland, rather than based on the England and Welsh model, which was the supported model in the consultation uh, responses by a majority of consultees. The officials also advised the Department has decided not to change the current discount rate at this time. In view of the decision to legislate for a new legal framework, and it is likely that the Minister will seek approval to bring forward the Bill through the accelerated passage process. Following the evidence session, the Committee requested a range of further information and indicated that at this stage it was not convinced of the merits of the accelerated passage route. The Department has provided the additional information and response is set at pages 695 to 699 of your meeting pack. The response outlines the Department's view of the timetable for accelerated passage for the Bill, and if the Bill does not proceed that way, the advice the Minister received regarding excusing herself and handing over the policy decision-making process to the Permanent Secretary. What other alternative options were considered? The position regarding the number of cases in the system that are not being progressed until a new rate is set, and clarification of the urgency for this legislation, given the Department can introduce an interim rate under the current framework. The Bar of Northern Ireland also wrote to the Committee setting out its view that there is an urgent need to address the current rate now, irrespective of the future legal framework. The Bar indicated that, in its view, it would be a minimum of at least another year before action would be taken to change the current rate under the Department's proposed approach, and it could not see the justification for the Department's continuing failure to change the rate now. The Chairman of the Bar also offered to meet the Committee to discuss the matter further. If that would be helpful, the Committee requested a response from the Department on these issues raised by the Bar, and the response is in your tabled pack, pages 26 to 28. And while the Department shares the Bar's concerns about the ongoing uncertainty in relation to the discount rate, it does not agree that setting an interim rate would bring the current period of uncertainty to an end, and prefers to legislate for a new framework as quickly as possible. So, members, I'm wanting to seek your views uh, in terms of uh, a committee response to where we're currently at on this area. Um, I, have, I have a number of points I suppose I'll make. One, I don't know if the Scottish model is the best model compared to the English or Welsh model. And the English and Welsh model was the preferred one through a majority of the consultee responses. Um, but notwithstanding that, uh, based upon the the presentation from officials that day, I couldn't say if I actually do agree with the Scottish model as the preferred legislative framework for a future rate. Um, two, I don't accept that the minister should have recused herself from this, having declared a, an interest. Um, I think the declaration of interest should be open so the people are aware of what that is, but it is. Um, Precedent, in my view, that a permanent secretary has been given this policy decision. Um, three, I don't accept that an interim rate can't be struck now. 
Um, indeed, the Permanent Secretary, uh, when he did have the legal power under direct rule, could have set the rate then, because this is a long-standing issue that goes back now quite a number of years. This isn't anything new in that respect. Um, and given the, the weight that is currently in place, uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for what the Bar have said uh, in respect of the unfairness of not striking an interim rate, um, to then seek accelerated passage as well for something that rules out this committee carrying out its scrutiny work, all leaves me very concerned about the approach that the department has taken in respect of this issue. Um, and so I do think it needs to be brought to a head um, in, in terms of what our committee view would be in respect of how we think that this sh should be addressed in light of the minister's decision um, or, or her proposal around the way forward. Um, so I, I have, of course, and I, I done it at the start of the meeting, I'll repeat it, I did declare an interest in this because of a family connection, um, which I've never actually spoken about. My, my real interest is for a constituent of mine, um, which I've been involved with from 2015, um, and I have kept in regular contact um, because she was left paralysed from the waist down. Um, was left, uh, in my view, a very poor experience with the criminal justice system, um, a very poor experience with the housing association in terms of the, the property that she lived in, uh, and is now being let down by this hiatus. Um, and uh, I think it's wholly unsatisfactory. So I have a, a particular constituency interest and wanting to get this resolved, notwithstanding wider views that I hold around how this should be taken forward through the normal processes of this Assembly. Um, and ultimately, the legal framework on the Scottish model, it, it, it may not be that actually that's something that the Committee would be supportive of once we would carry out our scrutiny work, and we may actually be of a view that the English and Welsh model is preferable. Meanwhile, this rate remains at what everyone has accepted as a unacceptably low rate. There is a recommendation there for what the interim rate should be. And actually, from my understanding, um, it is marginally higher than the current Scottish rate. It's lower than the English and, and Welsh rate. Um, so I don't accept the position the Department has held either. Uh, that would be a matter for individuals to determine, based upon their legal advice, whether or not they should now settle based upon the recommended interim rate, if that was the one that the Department uh, chose to use. So I've outlined, I suppose, broadly some of the concerns that I have in respect of this. Um, I'll be keen to hear what other members think as to, to, to how this should be addressed. Linda? It was my understanding that the Minister was going to come to the committee to make the case around accelerated passage. I would like to hear the case before I make a decision, but I, I agree with yourself at, the, at this minute in time. We couldn't. I, could, I certainly couldn't sit here and make a decision today for that reason. I, I would like to hear um, what the minister has to say, and particularly in response to some of the questions that you've just raised. I just had a wee question, and I'm just flagging it up because hopefully then maybe we'll get it answered as well. The department have put that um, there's more tr transparency and clarity offered by the Scottish model, and there may well be. And we look to Scottish models of, 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 of 
quite a bit of legislation and rightly so I think in some circumstances to be honest but I would like to know exactly what that means because just saying it sounds great to me it sounds like exactly what you'd want but I need to know what that means so for that reason I just think we need that we need that engagement with the, the minister or whoever is going to be representing the minister yeah Rachel um, like Linda I, I, I can't really come to a conclusion today I'm, I'm very confused still about the planning assumptions to which officials referred to in October involving um, accelerated passage of having second stage in March, consideration stage in April and in further consideration stage in May and final stage in June. We know that accelerated passage can be done in 10 days. We've done it so many times this year. I've been against it, by the way, because I don't get the scrutiny over it and the Assembly doesn't, but that that and it's based on having two days per month, two assembly stages per month. But why? Given that everything else has come through in the ten days. Um, so I'm still a bit confused about that. And I have questions about the department saying um, about ongoing period of uncertainty around the rate. Um, if they set an interim rate, that that would be you know destabilise things. How? I, I, I just I don't have enough information here. Um, and certainly would welcome more clarity. I know in, in reading the, the letter they've said that uh, even if you struck this new interim rate then people would still be off of you but you may get a higher rate so why settle? Now my view on that is well that's up to the, that's up to the individuals to take that decision. At the moment they're definitely not going to settle. You know, that, that, that's very clear. Sinead Bradley. One second Sinead. Hopefully you'll Yes, we can hear you now. Yeah, yeah um, just on that, I think we're rehashing a lot of what was said um, to the department officials, and I, I still don't have full clarity of thought. The options paper that was put in front of the minister, um, I don't know how she's arrived at not just this decision, but the the route of getting there, you know, how, how we're going to carry this through the House. Um, I haven't really satisfied myself in how we've arrived at that. And I wonder, is there merit in us asking for maybe some of the documents that led the department to take the decisions that they have to date? Because I don't see them. Yeah. Okay, well, I suppose I'm Conflicted on one hand because I want to invite the minister, but she's she's delegated this to her permanent secretary. Now, there is there is the potential that we could ask the permanent secretary to come to the committee um, at this stage with no oral briefing session factored in on the third of December, um, in order to tease this out uh, with him, and then the committee can take a view as to whether or not it wants to raise this any further. Because if they have, there is quite an extensive paper trail now. You know, to be fair, around uh -huh. what the department have said to the committee. My problem is, I I don't accept their logic. I don't agree with their logic. Um, and at this stage, I'm not convinced that their proposed way forward is is actually an acceptable way to proceed, because of all the points that I've raised. Um, so if members are are content. 
we, we could invite the, the permanent secretary to come up next week um, to discuss this. Sure, I think, that, I think that's a reasonable proposal because it's such a timely one. And I do accept, um, you know, while I don't like the accelerated passage, I do accept that there is a degree of urgency um, around this to get a solution, but it's to get the right solution. Um, and I'm not even convinced that a temporary interim, I think that would be definitely suboptimal while it might create um, breathing space. But yeah, I think the fact that we have that slot so early, I think in a reasonable position to take at this stage. Okay, well listen members, let's put the request in and we'll see if the permanent secretary is able to come forward to talk to the committee um, because there's a number of procedural questions to be asked as well as policy questions. Um, in respect of this issue, um, and we'll invite him to come to the committee then for the meeting on the 3rd of December. Um, and we have all of the paperwork here anyway. Okay. Okay, next item, um, item 10. The department provided a copy of a multi agency action plan that has been developed to address the findings and recommendations in the Criminal Justice Inspection Northern Ireland report on the care and treatment of victims and witnesses by the criminal justice system in Northern Ireland. Um, as agreed at the meeting on the 3rd of September, the committee considered the report oral evidence sessions with Sajini inspectors on the findings and recommendations of the report and with officials from the relevant organisations on the response will be scheduled on a suitable date in January. Committee forward work programme. There's a, a list of the items. Sure. Sorry, apologies, um, Linda. No, I, I'm sorry. It's not even on item 10. Just to, to quickly go back to personal injury, just to make a yes. point so that the... the Department will have an answer first. I would like to know the impact on the miscellaneous provisions bill because this is important, but there's really, really important stuff in the miscellaneous provisions bill. So I think that we have to factor that in, whether we like it or not. I'm not saying you give something accelerated passage to get it out of the road because you think something else is more important. But we need to we need to have all the facts. So if we can get information around that. But that'll be on the day anyway. Okay. Um, there's a list of the items of business um, that the department would like the committee to consider at our meetings in December. These include, include an oral briefing requested by the committee on organised crime in Northern Ireland with representatives from the NCA, PSNI, Customs and Excise, and then an oral briefing on the January, January monitoring round. Um, the minister is also due to attend a committee meeting, which we are having on the Tuesday, the 15th. Um, between 12.30 and 2 p.m. Um, since the papers were sent to members, the department has provided details of an additional written briefing paper uh, to schedule for our meeting on the 17th of December on the provisions for amendments to the uh, Crime Act of 2019 and the protection for the police and public courts and sentencing bill, and there's correspondence in the table pack to that effect. The department has also written outlining work on the stock take of Policing oversight and accountability arrangements has progressed more slowly than initially envisaged due to other pressures. The Department is therefore proposing to schedule the oral briefing requested by the Committee on the key issues to be considered during the stock take in the new year, with a written briefing provided beforehand. Again, that correspondence was in the table pack. So if members are content, we will schedule the work items that have been requested by the Department for the meetings in December, including the additional written paper and to schedule the oral briefing on the stock take of policing oversight and accountability arrangements in the new year. Um, and I've just mentioned the 3rd of December, which we're going to try and deal with the personal injury duty 
issue. Um, we'll also seek to have on that day the informal discussion on the forward work programme and then priorities for the rest of the mandate, which we uh, deferred from our meeting on the 12th of November. So we will have that on the 3rd of December. Uh, the Department has been asked to provide an update on the position regarding those items that it had intended to bring to the Committee between September, September and December, which it then didn't schedule. So we'll get that information as well, if members are agreeable to those items. Correspondence. There's 12 items. Um, correspondence and one item in the table pack. So uh, I'll just to draw attention to one item. Correspondence from the Department providing an update on the implementation of the Gillen Review of uh, Civil Justice and Associated Matters raised by the Association of British Insurers. The response highlights uh, that the Gillen Civil and Family Reports contains 400 wide-ranging recommendations, around one-third of which are within the Department's statutory remit, while others fall to the judiciary, legal profession or other departments, and the reports did not consider the financial or operational recommendations. The Department has indicated that it has focused its resources initially on areas that are likely to generate the greatest benefit for citizens, and this has primarily been on issues relating to family law. The Department has also responded to the issues raised by the insurance body uh, that fall within its remit. Um, the ABI, had, which is the insurance body, had indicated that it would be happy to come to the Committee to discuss the civil justice reforms, and the Committee agreed to consider whether this would be useful once a response um, was uh, received from the Department. So, members are content at this stage um, to note that this time permitting in the future if we can, and when it's relevant, we'll seek to accommodate that. Um, but at this stage, we will note that information. Members content will forward a copy of the Department's response then to the Association for its information. Agreed. And then you will have got this, members or some members, um, it was in the table pack, and that was just that the Women's Aid Federation um, had sent an email regarding the Department's proposals for the Domestic and Sexual Violence Advocacy Service and the tender process, including the minutes of the Stakeholder Assurance Group that uh, met on the 17th of August, and then the discussion paper that had been developed to deliver 21 advocate posts across Northern Ireland based on identified need, um, the 2018-19 police statistics, and within a criminal justice remit. Uh, I had met um, my local Women's Aid um, branch last Friday, and then the regional team actually joined that, and they raised a number of issues with me, um, which they would like um, this to be raised with the Minister, and they've set then those out. So if members are content, we will write to the Minister asking for a response to the questions that were being raised. If members are agreeable. Agreed. You content to action the correspondence then, the other items as outlined in the cover sheet. Um, only one item of Chairman's business, uh, and I had received a request from representatives of the Forum of Insurance Lawyers to meet to discuss the recent developments in respect of this personal discount rate issue and the proposed statutory framework to establish the way the rate is being set, and there's a copy of that correspondence in the table to pack. Um, so in due course, members, I'm content to meet with them informally. I think the meeting with Permanent Secretary will be informative uh, to that, and then we'll set that up. I know the correspondent um, with Linda as well on this, so um, in due course we'll uh, 
I'll facilitate that meeting. I've no problem doing so. Any other business? Are you sure? Be certain. Six hours later. Okay, well then, the next meeting um, will take place on Tuesday, and it'll be at one o'clock, and it'll be in room 30, and that will allow us to consider the amendments for the further consideration stage. One o'clock. Okay, meeting adjourned. This is the Northern Ireland.